Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too. And I'll be right there behind you. Constant listeners, and welcome yet again to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. We are in our second week of our Needful Things coverage. Last week, we got a little bit, uh, I guess you could say we're digging a little deep. We're getting deep deep. into the themes, deep into the ideas, the characters, kind of the fabric of Needful Things. Now we're going to get more into the text of Needful Things. We're going to be talking about our favorite bits, the scariest bits, and let's just say the bits that maybe didn't work so well. Um... The bits that King likes to talk about? Yes, oh, yeah. The dirty bits. <laughs> you might say we're going into the basement of Needful Things, the store. That's a good good. Uh, that's a good oh, way to put it. Yeah. Uh, my name is Rockin' Randall T. Nelson Colburn. <laughs> oh, you go to a lot of uh, creepy parties and with your, your friend? Uh, oh, I guess I didn't think about yeah. the implications Jewett, of that uh, one. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't know if you want that nickname. I but. just like the, I like the boldness of the last of the T. Nelson. Yeah, it's not bad. I mean, it has the Craig T. Nelson vibe. It does. I wanted to be coach. I just watched Poltergeist remake that doesn't star Craig T. Nelson. And it, and it hurts for that. It does hurt for that. <laughs> yeah. I was like, where's coach? And, and who are you? Uh, this is Michael Ace Merrill Rothman. Nice. Uh, changing it up uh, from Sheriff Pangborn uh, the previous week. So yeah. Really uh, changing it up. Really cha- polar opposites. The polar yeah. opposites. You know, we're uh, the doppelganger, if you will. So um, feeling good here in this sunny living room. Um, yeah, we're nice ready. Day. It's 51 degrees good. in Chicago. Uh, Mac, what do you? How do you feel? You feel a little bit better this week. Uh, I, f- I feel good, uh, so good that my name is Mackenzie, uh, Mommy the Trees Gerber. <laughs> That's so uh, awful, Mac. <laughs> <laughs> so awful. It was either that or <laughs> Mackenzie the Magical Spring Snake. Oh God, which like uh, is also like a good name, lots but of connotations, I, lots of pound cake connotations. You know, I just I look for M words, okay, and I saw mommy, <laughs> and I went with it. Uh, I'm feeling pretty good, and I'm so happy. It's 51, and the sun's finally out. It's you been know. it's been elusive this entire week. And uh, it's been great. Some great days here. In, I've been uh, in New York all week, so I wouldn't know. I know. Oh, did you go? Right. Did you go to any of those uh, delis, or uh, did you get a bagel? Uh, did you get some? Pizza? I had some of the local New York cuisine, oh. and I also looked in bookstores for Stephen King books. Oh, did you find any? Nah. Nothing, no Stephen no, King. Nothing of note. If I did, I would have posted it. New York has no Stephen King. I think they've excised him from the city. It's why he doesn't set stories. Did you go to uh, Calvin Towers bookstore? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's a Dark Tower reference. Uh, but we're not all alone here. No, no, no. We have a friend uh, in Missouri uh, joining us. <laughs> yes. Who? Who is it? Uh, this is Mel Poison Bullet Castle. Oh, yes. yes. I have abandoned alliteration. Like, I, like like I just go with whatever strikes my fancy these days. It is also really warm here, but I haven't been outside yet. I'll go outside later. Promise. Okay. It's a nice... We'll hold you to that. Yeah, we, we're going to make sure that you post photos on Instagram. Of um, you in the sun. Yeah. I need that vitamin D. Uh, I think it's actually warm enough here where you could actually lay down on the grass. No, maybe I'm I'm overshooting. I think you're. Over, I think, I you're think that's a, a gross miss. Yeah. Uh, so 
No. So we're here for our second part of Needful Things. If you are listening to this without having listened to the first one, that's weird. Go yeah. back and listen to it. <laughs> but we talked about uh, the hook. We talked about uh, the structure. We talked about characters. We talked about... We took a town census, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. yeah we yeah, went yeah. down through that that whole massive character list. So that's some good stuff. Now we're going to get a little bit more granular, and we're going to talk about the stuff that delighted and amused us and also uh, made us uh, shake our fists in anger. So let's start as... Uh, you know, maybe not, maybe in a way that Annie Wilkes would prefer, uh, with a little bit of misery. <laughs> we got there. Wow. She, she died. She just slipped away. Slipped away? Slipped away? She didn't just slip away. You did it. 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 You, did it. you murdered my misery. What's is there like a maybe there's like a larger overarching thing that you found really obnoxious here? Yeah. What did you have? So I actually didn't have any notes per se for Uh misery. I didn't have any specifics. Uh, I just mostly thought and we've already discussed this in the previous episode. um, But I just thought the ending was a little a little bit of a letdown. Like when Mm -hmm. people talk about King kind of having a letdown ending this kind of felt like one to me. It didn't ruin the book for me. Right. um, Because as they say, it's the journey. Uh, But it just felt very like he gets to this climactic moment and doesn't didn't really know what to do, you know, and just was like, well, what are they doing? Something wicked that you know this way comes. Eh, let's just let's kind of do that, you know. Yeah. yeah. What did you, did you feel similarly, <laughs> Mac? Regarding the, the podcast, ending? but no, I you know I have been really looking forward to this book for a long time, but I've I have heard from my brother that he he didn't really love the ending. Mm-hmm. And he said he he kept mentioning the last twelve pages, and I was like, "How can the last twelve pages like derail you so much so that you don't like?" Not granted, he likes the book, but I so I was really like looking forward to the ending to see like if I was going to feel the same way because you know I don't I always I don't always side with uh, my bro, and yeah, I I just it just didn't. I mean, this, it's, I guess it's not really an overarching thing. It's really specific. I didn't really love <laughs> the ending. But it, it did not uh, derail it enough for me to knock the book yeah. re- uh, too hard. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm not like it. it was, like there are definitely a few, been endings, a that few I key liked. things that just didn't land for me quite right. Yeah, I think for me, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna defend the ending. Oh, I'm right. gonna say. Well, I'll say this. What's that can of snake that you're a can of nuts that you have in your hand right now? <laughs> <laughs> no. Can of snake. Can of snake. I love that. Can That's my favorite snake. magic. Can shop of trick. snake and I of newt. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that I think for me, I, I I think the magic doesn't quite work. Yeah, that's my big issue. The I whole like time, the, right? I like wait, what? The whole book. Yeah, <laughs> it feels so weird and out of place. I just feel, for me personally, that I like the imagery of the ending at least. Yeah, um, yes. I love sort of the image of this can of nuts, like this bright white light coming out of it and a snake coming out and biting gone. I think it's really vividly written. You love written. that dwarf on top of I, the carriage. I was literally about to bring it up. <laughs> I was going to bring it up. And that is Leland gone, by the way. Oh, you, you uh, No, I'm just asserting yeah, it. Oh, okay. He's so serious. I'm he just knows. asserting it. I just still love the image of the... I, I just like the idea that he has this little gnome that exists in some other world and waits until Leland has to leave. No, he is the gnome. And he's just like wiping down. 
But just all imagine this gnome is picturing this carriage. All I'm picturing is Warwick Davis's like yeah. goblin from Harry Potter. You know, just like, ugh, just That's like, like, picture like, like the really sharp teeth. Just like, kind of like, okay, I guess I'll. Oh, you know what it is? It's, it's, is it Beetlejuice? Yeah, you no, know, no. The, oh. the 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 Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe cartoon. Oh, I watched I, yes. that as a kid. Yeah, it's 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 like the gnome that 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 is like in charge of uh, the white the white witch's uh, uh, carriage. I could see that. Yeah, it's really really specific. It, it also <laughs> reminds me of the ending of Witches of Eastwick, <laughs> where Dr- Jack Nicholson just becomes smaller and smaller. Um, spoiler if you haven't seen the George oh, Miller classic, horrific. but um, there that it reminded me. Spoiler about- alert: He does. <laughs> quite small he does he does and i that's how i if if he is indeed leland gaunt then you're just seeing this you know beacon of quote-unquote evil becoming this little like pipsqueak you know no uh height uh, like size does not determine how evil you can be small and evil oh you can yeah yeah i'm going to assert that uh speaking of which if you guys can hear my cat i'm sorry he's meowing at me he's small and evil oh that's okay i like a rumpelstiltskin yeah, oh, he's that's yeah, that, you know, uh, that's true. My cat is the gnome that drives the carriage. Uh, <laughs> Rumpelstiltskin is pretty evil. He's pretty mean, he's and pretty he's mean. a little guy. Rumpelstiltskin's got some, he's got some moves. <laughs> no, uh, I'll, say, I'll say this. Uh, Beetlejuice, when Beetlejuice is going to get married to Winona Ryder at the end of the movie. Oh, that thing. And oh, there's the that little, little imp priest. Yeah. That's who I always pictured driving the carriage. Oh, I could see that. And that's yeah. the real Leland Gaunt. Okay. <laughs> I okay. I um, like I you like all. To, disagree I like to with think me? there's a realm where you, think you this are is just right. His paid employee. I don't I think he's paid. I think he's a I'm slave. Half half what half all right, let's just imagine that <laughs> King is sitting there. The publisher is like, "Look, Stephen, give us this book. You know, we've already built it as the final Kasparov book. Your readers are demanding it. Give us this book." And he's like, "I got twelve more pages to write." And he's like, "All right, well, end of the week. You have till the end of the week." And he's watching like Freeform. Um, which I don't form. think existed in 1990, <laughs> no. uh, but he's watching that and like Beetlejuice is on and he sees that little guy at the end and he, he writes, that guy's, cool. that guy's Leon Gaunt. <laughs> no, I think he was getting pressure from his publisher and he turned, he said, all right, you know what? Gaunt's uh, an imp. <laughs> Done. Here you go. Like, oh, is that, you like, <laughs> you like that ending? Huh? You like it? You haven't listened to the first episode. This is even more insufferable. Yeah. <laughs> you have. Um, Okay. I I would hope they have, and I hope they're on board for this great bit, which I promise will not get brought up for the rest of the episode. We are absolutely going to be sharing photos of this little fit guy from Beetlejuice. <laughs> well, Mel, you, do you not agree? Really was this was this not Mel? Was this not the the uh, your your misery for what was it? Our our talking about this your misery for the book? <laughs> That's always my misery, Mac. That's my perpetual misery. Uh, my actual my actual overarching misery. Um, which, you know, there's just so much material that it doesn't feel worth it to actually delve into the book itself was his treatment of uh, Myra and Cora. Oh, which I, just, it's on mine just, too. It was like he decided to go totally, cra- like, lean into this thing that we've talked about so much, which is just that he loves to talk about overweight women and how disgusting they are. <laughs> and it was like just a little thing that we visited periodically. Um there was a great moment on 568 of my first edition where it talks about Myra's belly that had been swelled by ring dings, which I just yes. think he, yeah. he thinks is a particular Stephen King music. He's like, oh, I can really fucking let go and just talk <laughs> about how fat these women oh, are. <laughs> yeah, like on page 70, 
the door had barely shut behind them when it opened again. Cora Rusk and Myra Evans strode in. They looked around, eyes as bright and avid as those of squirrels in nut-gathering season, and went immediately to the glass case containing the picture of Elvis. Cora and Myra bent over, cooing with interest, displaying bottoms which were easily two axe handles wide. Axe handles. But it's like... Common metric. <laughs> I guess for me, and this this is a running theme, we've talked about this in other episodes, but there there is always this sense in a lot of King books where all the heroes are like really hot and hunky. And like he talks about like how hot Polly is like all the time. Yeah. And like, who's a heavy set protagonist that isn't like, you the know, guy that isn't thinner. pretty. Wait, what? Well, Myra does get a moment where she is beautiful because she is determined. Although he just uses it to, to put her in contrast with her older pig like self. Um, yeah. And I guess it's, it's that like, moment was so gross for me, like 420. Although she didn't know it and wouldn't have believed it if told, she had achieved a momentary beauty in the rural stillness. Her vague, unthoughtful face had filled, at least during these moments, with a deep purpose and determination which had never been there before. Her cheekbones were clearly defined for the first time since high school, when she had decided her mission in life was to eat every yodel and ding-dong and hoodsy rocket in the world. During the last four days or so, she had been much too busy having progressively weirder and weirder sex with the king (laughs) to think much about eating do you think she was like george costanza it like ha- like having like these like masturbate you know masturbation sessions and then like rolling over and like grabbing eating a, a sandwich and yeah and just eating like it's a sandwich so or something ridiculous. it's been four days like you don't just like <laughs> she's like hey, a completely different it's the person king. it's the king it's the king no i it's it's like this is just a, a thing in king though where he portrays overweight people oftentimes as, as doofuses yeah and uh, like the way and like the first time that gaunt is like mean to someone uh, like he calls, I think he calls Hugh Priest like a dummy or something like that. But then he he like makes Myra get down on her knees mm-hmm. and like say, "Give me a blowjob" yeah. or something like that, which is just really bizarre. It's really and he like totally berates her and treats her like garbage. Where it's like, I mean, there is just I don't think it's like an intentionally malicious thing on King's part, but he just does tend to portray people who are overweight as grotesque <laughs> and as total doofuses. Here's an honest question, and I'm not trying to make a bit or anything here. Um, do you think King has body dysmorphia though? Because if you think about it, like he started out, he was heavy, you know, he got, he started getting a little thinner in the, in the eighties. Um, it gained a little bit back, but then lost all of it ever since his car accident. And he's, you know, he's kept the weight off since then. But I do wonder if like, if, if it's a recurring element. Well, he wrote a whole book mo- about I, it. Exactly. Yeah. You know, well, so I do, but I think, I think his portrayal of, fatness is so often tied to his portrayal of women that I don't like I think this is something that's he's trying to totally alienate from any vision of himself it doesn't strike me as something that's connected to a personal yeah I will say mostly it's it is in the depiction of women that that we pick up on this a lot more I feel yeah. over the course of the books you know what I mean I'm not yeah. saying he hasn't done it with men but he has definitely done it with women a lot yeah because I mean think about otherwise we wouldn't have pound cake half the time well, well that's true he talks yeah. about it with men it is always this sort of relatable like god where did this beer belly come from like i gotta get in shape but when he talks about it with women it's like look at this figure of disgust and revulsion and, it, and then also if you think about it like there isn't really any strong like good natured protagonists um especially women that are overweight in his books like ralph case. ralph brenter is the only one i can think of and even then he's not it's not like he's like morbidly obese or something is he like described that. Yeah, he gets that crucified. In the book, or is it are you just thinking of the actor who <laughs> i'm played thinking him of the, the actor in the movie but uh <laughs> well, but also even though even when a character like um harold 
Like he literally has to become skinny yes. in correlation with his redemption. But that's, right. what, I'm saying. But yeah. that's what I wonder if he does have some sort of, I mean, I don't know. No, it's, it's, he just doesn't like fat people. You never know. <laughs> well, there, I mean, if you look back in like ancient, you know, history, the idea, like, I'm, I'm just, I'm just saying like literary wise, like as a device, like, there's like you know you you try to use it as like a gluttonous thing I guess to say like oh these are glut like usually the people that he does describe as you know overweight and or even poorly are those that have gluttonous natures to them you know like they are um, uh, corpulent in, in ways that are distasteful you know like they have like a you know greed or a lust or or some sort of um, defining characteristic that would fit into those sort of verticals so. I think honestly, it's just him just doing caricatures. Like it's just easier for him to kind of convey the point that oh, he's trying to it, get. It totally is. And I teach um, the segment of every semester when I teach literature, I open with the segment of Dance Macabre where he talks about what is a monster and he has several de- definitions of monstrosity, but he spends a similar amount of time and effort on a depiction of fat people that like becomes hypnotically like he falls for his own game like he starts describing them and being like we should really pick apart why we think obese people are monstrous and then he's like god they are though right like let's think about it like yeah. one time i saw this guy get nice. stuck in a revolving door and it was like a freak show and you're like jesus steven <laughs> can't even hold back in your non-fiction about like how much you are helplessly drawn towards and repulsed by overweight people like i really think it's one of his most reliable and incurable blind spots that is starting to like really great on me yeah i mean i'm trying to think if he does it because i've read the institute and i've read the outsider and mr mercedes and all that and i'm trying to think if he does pulls any of those tricks in those later books but i don't remember no the only thing i can remember is big jim rennie and yeah but that yeah but i don't know that that suits that character it does yeah (laughs) because he is like such a symbol of excess and and uh like eat everything in sight mm, yeah. like monster monstrousness yeah um no that's i think that's i think these are themes that we've touched on previously and we'll probably touch on again yeah but I they're going just back really, to like carry even like, yeah, yeah yeah totally they're just really present in this book um other bits of misery that you guys can recall i personally uh this one i i wrote down as misery but then i said is it though because it made me laugh um it's when Buster Keaton on page 258 of the, what is this? Pocket Books Fiction. Uh, uh, I just thought this was funny because it's so childlike. Uh, Buster Keaton, uh, he he's screaming about they. And, he, and then he says, he slammed the letter down on top of the others. He closed the file. Typed neatly on the tab was correspondent, main bureau of taxation. Keaton stared at the closed file for a moment. Then he snatched the pen from its holder and slashed the words main bureau of caca across the, <laughs> across the uh, <laughs> file in large trembling letters. He stared at it a moment and then wrote main bureau of assholes below it. It was just to me like at first I read it and I was just like, why is this 50 year old man writing caca like in big letters on a it's file? It's also K-A-K-A. Like is that, <laughs> I don't know. I had that in pound cake. Yeah, I, I that was that was a bit of misery for me. Was there's a lot of instances where when the people are like under Gaunt's spell, the some of the things they say and some of their their like irate, you know, rants are, feel so dated. And this is this is a book written in the 1990s, and it's supposed to take place around the 1990s. I'm assuming, right? Yeah, you never get the feeling that it's yeah, because like Twin Peaks is on or the 40, you know. Yeah. But and I'm like, maybe this is a regional thing, but like the way people talk, like. Like like 
like that young woman is calling what's her name a chippy and stuff like that. I just like I just I don't I don't think it just it doesn't feel it feels weird it feels out of place uh, you know what we kind of brushed upon this last week but i really do think a lot of this was influenced by the the runoff of 50s nostalgia that was happening in the 80s you know um actually it's kind of a, a, a latent thing that was coming from the the late 70s also because of the happy days and everything but yeah i think like if you look back at that era like this is like you know when john waters was taking off huge yeah. uh you know with his kind of 50s aesthetic and the the kind of campiness there david lynch's blue velvet with twin peaks which they reference in here i just think that a lot of that might be influencing him as making like this kind of small town kooky yeah. vibe that was so you know like in vogue at the time yeah. it also uh, it also rings to me of, of something we talked about last time which is that leland gaunt himself like does this gleeful slide into like antiquated trashiness very yeah. easily in a way that you're that's almost like off-putting and you're like did he write caca because like he just doesn't know the modern slang or like what would someone actually put on this slip of paper oh totally um, yeah. which to me is like this funny childish part of of leland gaunt um yeah. or in that same section though and i mean i guess i could go there are a couple of things concerning women that I that I didn't like, but it goes back to that narratorial problem of like, are we in someone's head or are we mm. being privy to this this omniscient narrator? When Keaton is looking at all these pink slips on two seventy three of the Viking, what would he think of that word embezzlement screaming off the pink violation slips again and again and screaming like a woman being raped in the middle of the night? Is like Jesus. such a gross comparison to yeah. make um but i also hesitated to bring it up because it's like well of course keaton would equate like this stupid like non-consequential thing to the most awful consequential thing like is that keaton having this thought and we're supposed to hate him for having it or is it king like tr- like delighting in you know more awfulness like i don't know yeah and that is i didn't like it. the lines do get blurry sometimes when and i feel like that that's something that maybe got a little messier at this stage in his career because early on I felt like it was always really clear when he was narrating and when the character was sort of the one who was uh, molding yeah. the, the description. So whereas here it does come in and out and it points to the a whole idea with like structure and stuff that we are in format that we talked about last week, which is when he'll suddenly burst into in the middle of a book uh, first person, you know, as yeah. the narrator, yeah. which is a writer. There is a point at which I know it is King, which is 145 when we're talking about Pete and Wilma. He took five or six Xanax pills a month, most of them on the days before Wilma started her period. Oh, boy. <laughs> Just like, it's really funny to me that King still does not know how menstrual cycles work. <laughs> and like, it becomes so evident in much of his fiction um, that it by now is cute, but <laughs> yeah. just a little throwaway. And I think I think some of the... I don't know, some of the antiquated language and things like that might also be interwoven with the satire and the fact that he wanted this to be funnier. Because, like, I don't know, there was one moment of comedy that I thought was so bizarre, and I put it in 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 misery, even though it made me laugh, but I think it was just the absurdity of it. And it's near the end. It's page 790 of He, It's when Eddie Warbutton and Sonny Jacket like confront each other in the gas station. Yeah, yeah. And they're like shooting each other. And then when Eddie realizes he shot like an employee named Ricky and not Sonny, mm-hmm. he goes, ah, shit, Eddie screamed, I shot the wrong fucking honky. Yeah, like... <laughs> and then he... And then, and then Sonny just shows up and goes, hello, Eddie. <laughs> Good thing for me, I was in the shit house, wasn't it? It's like so... <laughs> it's so... 
But I kind of... B-movie. I know, it's yeah. so B-movie, but I, I feel like it was intentional, and he was trying to be funny there, but... And be kind of, I don't know, dramatic in a in a satirical way. But to me, it's like, it just felt so glaring and yeah. weird and like such a cartoony kind of moment. Yeah, you know? exactly. So I don't know. But I shot the wrong fucking honky. Which is well, like... King satire is so close to King kind of like having fun. Yes. <laughs> it's really hard to right. differentiate the two. And it's a pretty severe scene too. So the, the like tonally, that's a that's a kind of a weird scene because that's like when you actually get the sense that people can kind of jump out of like it's almost like a Temple of Doom when you know like a short round burns Indy and he's like oh and he like comes to like he does come to in this scene and realizes like oh shit like we are been being played being and duped, it's too yeah. late but it's like it's it's played out like a, a fucking dolomite movie that like you can't even like really get the the stakes that are there at that in that moment and that's I, um, kind of a problem with some of the scenes in, in this book yeah I, and i i appreciate your temple of doom reference yeah, yeah. uh but the, <laughs> uh speaking of shooting the another thing that did not land for me was why are, why are the bullets poison oh my god that was so fucking ridiculous Do they need to be i have poison that on bullets? here too. like so that that is so stupid. it's like yeah it's it's enough these people are blowing each other away or they're shooting each other enough where they're probably not going to survive and if they survive they're gonna have some real serious problems yeah we don't need to have the bullets be poison no that that's where it's it starts to get call from the ambulance yeah and it's just it starts to get yeah, that, that is a great ridiculous scene when they're talking about that and i i just felt like that is kind of the turning point where it starts to get a little bit too convoluted, convoluted. Yeah. and then the mad. So when the magic stuff happens, and I don't care that he's been doing magic from you know page one of the book or whatever, it just feels so weird. Or it feels wrenched in. Like it, you know. it, it, it just doesn't fit. It doesn't fit for me. You know that he would just know that the snake would would be the thing that would. He doesn't even know. He just like I don't know. Instinctually, just like throws the can of beans or whatever the fuck it is at at Gaunt, and then the snake beans. becomes real. It's not a beans, you, you know, open like a can of beans like you would a can of nuts. Well, 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 I don't think you're throwing a can of nuts at anyone either. Well, you know what I mean? It, it almost seems like it's a scene from like Detective Pikachu, where like they're just like Man, throwing. Yeah, it's like yeah, Pikachu. it's a Pokemon. <laughs> yeah, it's a Pokemon. I mean, it's you know, like convoluted plot the aside, the, the effects in that movie are really great, and they're it just reminded me of like when he throws the thing and the dragon comes out it seems like you know like we're watching um one of the characters names that's not ash um like or, throws the, the the pokeball and like this thing comes out and like you know the dragon flows around and stuff like that's what it reminded me of but he, um, and, and another thing is like cast pokecast like, just some of the dialogue at the end doesn't really you guys joke i would go on pokecast in a new york <laughs> <laughs> some of the some of the dialogue doesn't really make it just doesn't feel right like when I don't care how magic themed it gets at the end, but when Pangborn yells out "Abracadabra, you lying fuck," yeah, yeah. that it feels like he's That's he's too king. he feels That's too yeah, and he yeah. feels too like um, prepared for the moment when he didn't even know any of this was going to work in this way. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So it's yeah. like. It just, Imagine if Johnny just Smith in weird. the dead zone yelled like, uh, you know, wham, bam, before he <laughs> shot. Like, <laughs> wham, bam. <laughs> Sarah, I love you. Wham, and it's strange bam. because like the magic angle, like I said, I said this last episode where in Tommyknockers, I felt like they used magic in a really creepy, really unsettling way when, yeah. you know, the, the boy is sent to the other, you know, the planet or whatever. Mm. And that is like really unnerving because you don't, 
you don't understand the kid obviously doesn't understand the logic of what's actually happening but here it's just it's just kind of it is a little like you know uh, something wicked this way yeah. comes and but they had set that up in something wicked this way comes because there's been all these like great right, meditations right. on magic and well, the value but how of good and evil. Are we supposed to take this like in the same way that he wants the town to be a satire and the conflict to be a satire? Do we think there could be an inkling of that in how neatly it is wrapped yes. up in, in his like? Well, all of a sudden they are standing for much more than themselves, and this side is the black and this side is the white. And I, I think there's I a know. little of that, but I also think it really comes like you said it last week. Right? It's like I think he just needed to come up with an ending, yeah. and, and it really screams that way. The fact that he literally reuses the ending for the the stand is kind of mm. crazy to me yeah i mean like when they did the epilogue it's like you didn't even have to read it to know exactly what was yeah. going to happen and it's like that's literally the fucking epilogue for the stand and, and it, it's just i don't know it seems a little lazy to me yeah and i agree with you mel i think that that is what's going on but i think that's where the book fails a little bit because i feel like in his efforts to make it a satire the book's so long that there are lots of moments where it just for me, it strays from that and becomes very like grim and real. Yeah. It doesn't feel like it's just like a, a satire yeah. anymore. And I think that that's, that's the And failure. you know that's on purpose too. Yeah. So it's like... Yeah, it's total inconsistency of, of tone. Right, right. I, I actually really appreciate the ending of the movie uh, over this. No, I haven't seen the movie I yet. I know, but, but you've heard the, the... I don't know the ending. Okay, well, basically, so I don't, you've <laughs> heard needful tweets though. You've heard at least one or two lines from it. Oh, yeah. And yeah. it gets very Capra-esque. And right. it's actually, but the thing is, is that those like Capra-esque elements would have worked in this book yeah. um, because the, this whole idea of like, you know, unity and like, let's stop the outrage and all that. Great. I would have actually like that a little bit more. Done? Don't you don't see just, what he's Don't you see what he's done? done? <laughs> like, like that for me would have made more sense than, you know, like, whoosh, whoosh, like my dead kid, um, you know, Look, so. You know, like, and a snake. You know, like, yeah. You know, like the coming of the white. <laughs> Oh, I, yeah, that, that, I love that. Yeah, and you know, why don't we just throw Roland and Eddie to you know pop up also? Um, just, that would have been funny. He's just gotten. I don't know. I, I I'm going back to the abracadabra you you fuck because it's it's so inauthentic and it's so cinematic, yeah. you know. And I feel like this is where maybe all of his work in Hollywood was starting mm-hmm. to and and like I mean, Needful Things reads very cinematically. Oh, it does. Yeah. Like I, we yeah. talked about that last week with you know when Ace arrives in town, it literally feels like a screenplay description. Yeah. It's you like know? when Josh Harnett appears in the faculty. Yes. <laughs> God damn. He drives in. She's you know. Cool. Yeah. It's little, it's exactly like that. I, was I know. Of the hitcher, but like. <laughs> yeah. No. I uh, because he just has like I I'm thinking of one in desperation. I won't spoil like what happens, but there's like you know there's a monster like talking to a guy and saying you suck you've always sucked or something and then he goes god forgive me i hate critics and then he like <laughs> does the the climactic move uh, and like i have always hated that because yeah. it's so inauthentic and so lame and it just climactic one-liner they so rarely land i know and like you just think about like what if they did that in like his older novels you know like i feel like in salem's okay, lot like before he he's just like you know take this to heart and then he stabs him like but you with- can also picture stephen king writing and being like i mean this is perfect. Like, what else could he possibly say at this moment? <laughs> so fucking badass. Like, Abracadabra, like if, you lying fuck. Like if Lewis went to like um Gage, just like dig this. Yeah. God. <laughs> I will like, say um I can see Ed Harris saying that and selling the line. Oh, Ed Harris <laughs> could sell any. I could see him doing that, but you know what? Well, I, I prefer I don't, think we're gonna don't get you that, see what though. he's done? 
I, I would I will go look. We're gonna be talking about the the movie soon, but yeah. th- it's one of Ed Harris's best performances. Oh, that's, that is a bold statement. It is so he's so good in this movie. I love. I, I just love when he fucking freaks out throughout the whole movie. <laughs> it's like everyone has lost their mind. Like he sounds like <laughs> fucking insane, and like I can't imagine how much cocaine he did in this movie. Really I mean, the abyss. The abyss is great. The abyss now, is what, top top, no, top no, Harris. Let, really quickly, not to derail you, too much. You're giving up on anything. When in we, your yes, when we when <laughs> we did what. What was that? What was that episode? Was that it was one of the needful? It was one where we were. We we did the entire sequence from the abyss. Yes, instead of needful (laughs) tweets. We were like, take it away, Ed Harris, and then I and I, and I just because I didn't want to look up the trailer and make it's the like sound bite. I just threw the thing. Oh yeah, the whole thing. Where he's trying oh, to yeah. revive her. God. And we, so I wanted funny. to see what and you know some readers, some listeners uh, appreciate it, and they they tweeted about it, and I, it was it was a great bit. And, and more probably there, didn't I no appreciate it. Yeah, we, no, no. They, there are a lot of people that probably uh, like the full house music. The, right. the abyss people in, in dark cloaks are going to come after us. Yeah. <laughs> using uh, that. Before we move on from. Before misery. we move on from misery, I have to reiterate my my hate for Lester Pratt's like fifties ish yeah. uh, horniness. Uh, page five forty six. Rudy toot toot cried Lester Pratt enthusiastically. <laughs> Sweet little Sally in her birthday suit, and I just think of like a thirty year old man saying this. He's and Andy it's very from funny. the office. He's not a thirty year old man. He is solid hawk. <laughs> and then later uh he's he's imagining sleeping with her and he's like those lovely sleepy cornflower blue eyes opening wide and by the time the clock struck 10 they would be virgins no longer rudy toot rudy toot and on that i mean speaking of great writing i think it's time for us to move on to our next section word processor of the gods and we're gonna make a new rule whenever i'm in here you hear me typing whether you don't hear me typing, whether the fuck you hear me doing in here when I'm in here, that means that I am working. That means don't come in. Now, do you think you can handle that? Yeah. Fine. Why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here? Welcome to Word Processor of the Gods. This is a section where we actually talk about the good writing. The good the writing. stuff that we yeah. thought was uh, really lovely or striking or interesting. Um, it's the good place. We are in the good place, which just ended. Yeah. Um, not I, for me though. I, no, not a not fan. For, yeah, <laughs> just putting that out. There. Good place cast. Yeah, no, no, uh, no bonus episodes in that one with us. Um, I, I have one on uh, 363. Uh, I, I thought that there's little segments. I don't actually have a lot of uh, word processor here, but little things that I love that uh, stepped away from the natural settings, which is usually what I kind of point out with. I, if you go back and you collected every one of my pieces of word processor, it would just be King talking about like leaves or like the It's the true. Wind. It's always like a man stepping out of a diner yeah. looking at the sky. So this one is just more of like a, an actual observation that I really appreciated. Uh, 363 on uh, Big Book, um, Gallery Books Edition. Polly had a slightly deviated septum, and now she began to snore lightly, a sound Alan actually found rather pleasant. It was good to be sharing a bed with another person, a real person who made real sounds and sometimes flitched the covers, filched the covers. He grinned in the dark. I just love that little moment. It just yeah. kind of captures their uh, relationship a little bit and also captures the joy of a relationship. It oh, totally boy. worked on me because I can't stand snoring. <laughs> so I was like, wow, if he really still loves her. 
They, these kids oh. have got to make it work. <laughs> yeah, I've I've had some people over that have snored really bad, um, and I've had uh, did to you, put. Uh, did you hurt them? I I wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was not uh, charming at all, and we uh, it was literally like a carpenter movie because I was putting stuff under the door. And um, we were crying, oh, and I was God. taking Benadryl, and I was like, "Why can't? Why? Why won't he stop?" It's like the it's like the the person that's snoring comes 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 to the door, yeah. and it's like it's like midsummer. Yeah, exactly. It <laughs> <laughs> removes the things. From the- <laughs> snoring is awful though because it's like they don't realize the no. amount of uh of pain they're inflicting. Yeah. It's like it's like a it's like a passive attack. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I. Uh, no, I I had a roommate who snored, and we used to try to throw things in his general direction, uh, but not hit him because we didn't want to wake him up. So we were like, we need to cause like light movements around him to get him to shift. <laughs> so we would very carefully like throw pillows in his direction, and, stuff. <laughs> and sometimes it would work, and sometimes it wouldn't. Um, so I want to read a bit really early on, page thirty five, and this I think resonates for me because I used to be super religious, and I used to sort of believe in some of the more fantastical Bible stories and there was, but I think the part, I think what resonated with me was like, like Jonah and the whale, right? Like you could believe that it didn't actually happen, but also consider the magnificence, magnificence of Mm -hmm. the idea if it did happen. And I kind of love the, so I love the splinter of wood from Noah's Ark, right? Because it feels like, like a tangible relic from a very, um, you know, a story that is very likely not, not true. true, but more of an allegory, a biblical allegory or something. So it's like, um, uh, but I love the way it's described and it, it does have a little magic to it. So when Brian is holding it right at the beginning, um, I just love this description. So he had a vague sensation of movement, a corkscrewing kind of movement, a sound quick and light, thud, 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 thud. He knew that sound. It was a boat, he cried, delighted, without opening his eyes. I feel like I'm on a boat. Do you indeed, Mr. Gaunt said. And to Brian's ears, he sounded impossibly distant. The sensations intensified. Now he felt as if he were going up and down across long, slow waves. He could hear the distant cry of birds, and closer, the sound of many animals. uh, Cows lowing, roosters crowing, the low, snarling cry of a very big cat. Not a sound of rage, but an expression of boredom. In that one second, he could almost feel wood, the wood of which this splinter had once been a part, he was sure, under his feet, and knew that the feet themselves were not wearing Converse sneakers, but some sort of sandals. And and then it was going, dwindling to a tiny bright point, like the light of a TV screen when the power cuts out. And then it was gone. I just love that because it, it captures sort of, um, it takes the mythic and it it's uh, it's magical in the way it sort of manifests. And it, mm-hmm. to me, really, you can see then later why Sally is so obsessed with it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. So that's a moment that really resonated with me. But I think it did because I know what it's like to have that sort of, uh, I don't know, be- uh, uh, hopeful belief in a magical kind of story. Yeah. You know? And it's such a, it's one of the most magical ones. It's one of the most unbelievable ones yeah. to put two of every animal on a boat. But then for King to give it this sort of immediacy of like, you hear this, you smell this yeah. is just like the most temptation, temptation, right. tempting thing. Temptation. <laughs> um, for, for a believer, I think, is that kind of like immersion in a story that is one of the most fantastic in the Bible. Yeah. What else do you guys have? I really, I talked about this last time, but on page 73 of the Viking edition, it is um, Hugh Priest and he sees the fox tail and he remembers um, like going around in a convertible 
And it says, the memory surprised and hurt him in its clarity and total sensory recall. Smoky aroma of burning leaves, November sun twinkling on guardrail reflectors. And now looking at the foxtail in, in the display window of needful things, it struck him that it had been the best day of his life, one of the last days before the booze had caught him firmly in its rubbery, pliant grip, turning him into a weird variation of King Midas. Everything he had touched since then, it seemed, had turned to shit. He suddenly thought, I could change. This idea had its own arresting clarity. And a little bit further down the page, for a moment, the possibility stunned and excited him the way a long-term prisoner might be stunned and excited by the sight of the key left in the lock of his jail cell by a careless warder. For a moment, he could actually see himself doing it, picking up a white chip, then a red chip, then a blue chip, getting sober day by day and month by month. No more mellow tiger, too bad, but also no more payday spent in terror that he would find a pink slip in his envelope along with his check. And that was not so too bad. In that moment, as he stood looking at the foxtail on the display window of needful things, Hugh could see a future. For the first time in years, he could see a future, and that beautiful orange fox brush with its white tip floated through it like a battle flag. I just, I was so arrested by this moment because I loved that his temptation was a good one. It was Mm -hmm. something that we would all want for him and that he deep down wants for himself. And it's so sad. Yeah, this is in my word processor as well. And I talked a little bit last week about how I feel like King, um, like, whereas some characters are caricatures, like mm-hmm. we talked about earlier. And I feel like in, in some ways, Hugh kind of becomes a caricature yeah. later in the book. But for this, these early scenes of him, I think are really lovely. And also, it's clearly King drawing on his own recovery process and like maybe what he struggled with when he was at the height of his alcoholism. I feel like it's just a really humanizing moment. And um and something that we don't get for a lot of these small town characters. you know. Yeah. So. And I think that description of like the sudden surprise and clarity of as if a warder has like left the key to your cell in your cell is like applicable to so many situations where you're just like, shit, like, you know, I could just do something totally different. And it's such a such a something that seems like it comes out of left field, but is also completely interior in a way that I don't know. It was a good moment where he gave a metaphor that resonated for me. Yeah. I agree. Any others? Uh, do you have one? No, I don't really have. I don't really have too many because I felt like there weren't a lot of. There wasn't a lot of moments like meditative moments. I, I mean, I guess I could have done what, what like what you did, Mel, where you jumped around a little bit on that same page. But, um, you know, I mean, there's some cool cinematic lines, but like here and there. But for me, I didn't. I didn't really grab a, a lot of. Um, sections I, I i liked a lot of the uh, king's own intuition uh in here and i always try to gravitate towards the, the the sections where you can tell he's speaking from some sort of truth that he's experienced himself mm-hmm. um the you know someone who's definitely trying to quit cigarettes the sequence where pangborn goes to the morgue and has a cigarette for the first time like i thought his the sections were you know we've known that like king is was a cigarette smoker also so he knows from personal experience and that personal experience really you know, bleeds out in these words uh, on page 335 on a gallery books edition. The first, the first puff made his head feel swimmy. He had been trying to quit for almost two years and kept almost making it. Then something would come up. That was both the curse and the blessing of police work. Something always came up. He looked up at the stars, which he usually found calming and couldn't see many. The high intensity lights, which ring the hospital, doled them out. He could make out the Big Dipper, Orion, and a faint reddish point that was probably Mars, but that was all. Mars, he thought. That's it. That's undoubtedly it. The warlords of Mars landed in Castle Rock around noon, and the first people they met were Nettie and the Jurassic bitch. The warlords bit them and turned them rabid. It's the only thing that fits. He thought about going in and telling Henry Ryan, the state of Maine's chief medical examiner, it was a case of alien intervention. Doc case closed. 
He doubted if Ryan would be amused. It had been a long night for him, too. Alan dragged deeply on the cigarette. It tasted absolutely grand, swimmy head or no swimmy head, and he felt he could understand perfectly why smoking was now off-limits in the public areas of every hospital in America. John Calvin had been dead right. Nothing that made you feel this way could possibly be good for you. In the meantime, though, hit me with that nicotine, boss. It feels so fine. And that is literally the crux of trying to quit smoking. <laughs> like, yeah. It is just every time you have a chaotic moment, you're like, all right, well, this warrants it. So let's have it. And that swimmy head feeling is something that is really hard to describe because you are just like sitting there like this sucks, but it's also great at the same time. Mm-hmm. But um, just love it when you can get little pieces of love king from there because that's not pangborn talking that's literally king yeah just like going through probably smoke breaks while he's doing this because he's you know obviously off drugs mm-hmm. that's probably one vice that he still has that doesn't really want to give up yeah um anyway that was one. well speaking of addiction like i like to the way he writes uh like just this brief um bit about buster's gambling addiction uh page 269 of the pocketbooks that was the real trouble with the track. He hadn't recognized it at first, but he had recognized it soon enough. The track was a place where people paid their money, took a ticket, and gave up their sanity for a little while. Keaton had seen too much insanity in his own family to feel comfortable with the attraction Lewiston Raceway held for him. It was a pit with greasy sides, a, a snare with hidden teeth, a loaded gun with the safety removed. When he went, he was unable to leave until the last race of the evening had been run. He knew he had tried. Once he had made it almost all the way to the exit turnstiles before something in the back of his brain, something powerful, enigmatic, and reptilian had arisen taking control and turned his feet around keaton was terrified of fully waking that reptile better to let it sleep i just love that little bit because it i know it's a little bit of humanizing there that you know these are compulsions and how i think king is so good at writing like what it's like to be in the grip of addiction and we talked and like we talked about that a lot with misery too i think there was a lot of that language in there and that whole idea of just being trapped because obviously that whole book is about being trapped and being tortured and that to me is uh an area that he is very good at. well you you almost get a sense that this book i mean like we were saying last week it is a purging so if in that you know context when he's looking at these characters who are dealing with things that he might have dealed with himself i don't think he was ever a gambler but um you know know. with a you know with the smoking and the addiction or the the idea of an addiction arc or the you know the 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 compulsion of the need for things is certainly something that is tied to his own personal experience and Mm -hmm. the fact that he is kind of this is like that spiritual cleansing for himself it speaks in a lot of these characters i think yeah yeah both sections and hughes as well are ones where there's been a progression. They've come far enough that they can recognize that they are engaging in coping mechanisms that are unhealthy rather than prior characters who kind of would just lose themselves immediately um, or only have inklings that this was maybe something they should change. I think it's like almost scarier when you're like the smoking section that you read, Mike is sort of frightening just because you're like, yeah, like obviously this is awful. And yeah, but I also know that I have not progressed beyond this coping mechanism enough. I, there's some other things going on in my life that necessitate this coping mechanism yep. so that it's not going to stop today. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. You just and, keep pushing it. And then like the way I think all of that is prelude to, you know, the addiction these people have to the things they get at the mm-hmm. store. Yeah. And I think one of the best depictions of that is Sally, um, page five thirteen of the pocketbooks uh, with the splinter of wood again. Um, and this, I love the last line of this chapter as well. It's so good. Mm. Um, 
She snatched it up and at once felt peace and serenity flood through her. She grabbed the envelope with her other hand and then held both hands in front of her. Good and evil, sacred and profane, alpha and omega. Then she put the torn envelope in the drawer and tossed her underwear on top of it and held her skelter piles. She sat down, crossed her legs, and bowed her head over the splinter. She shut her eyes, expecting to feel the floor begin to sway gently beneath her, expecting the peace which came to her when she heard the voices of the animals, the poor, dumb animals, saved in a time of wickedness by the grace of God. Instead, she heard the voice of the man who had sold her the splinter. You really ought to take care of this, you know, Mr. Gaunt said from deep within the relic. You really ought to take care of this, this nasty business. Yes, Sally Ratcliffe said. Yes, I know. She sat there all afternoon in her hot maiden's bedroom, thinking and dreaming in the dark circle which the splinter spread around her, a darkness which was like the hood of a cobra. Oof. I love that last line. Yeah, it's so that's spooky. creepy. But yeah. just that yeah. whole, yeah, that whole concept of like just a whole afternoon sitting on the floor with this one thing, like so in this eerie. meditative trance, it's very eerie and it's very, uh, uh, and it speaks to that whole idea of addiction too and about like losing yourself within this one thing. You know? And how much time is lost in that addiction too, which yeah. is really kind of, because it's almost like this, like an abandoned building yeah. almost. And you just like, time just keeps moving and yet you're still in the same place. It's just, uh, it's like that know. scene in paranormal activity when you, she yeah. just stands still and you see the time hours go by. Yeah. I yeah. God. Yeah. I yeah, like uh, that movie you know, actually. Uh, paranormal three. <laughs> um, I, I like towards the end when, uh, Alan, um, uh, it talks about the, there's like a little thing that he, he King weighs on in on uh, sanity on page 784. Uh, Alan felt sanity begin to fill him again. It was funny stuff, sanity. When it was taken away, you didn't know it. You didn't, you didn't feel its departure. You only really knew it when it was restored, like some rare wild bird which lived and sang within you, not by decree, but by choice. And I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. I think that that's, that was a really, that is a really good good piece of writing that speaks to me because there are times when you know you'll get like irate or upset at something or, or whatever it is and then when you only really understand that you you had lost it when it comes back to you yeah. and and that is it's weird that you only grasp it then and not when you're you know <laughs> losing it's, your mind yeah but it's like i guess it's thing. counterintuitive yeah mm-hmm. yeah and it's it's i think that's something that it kind of even ties back to King with like Jack Torrance, maybe of like his own feelings of maybe that, that's, I can't, it's hard to imagine King as this like rageaholic. So I, I imagine that stuff was probably welded into Torrance and it was more of like the alcoholism. God damn it. Tabby. You know, ah, damn it. Tabby. You know, <laughs> get the fuck out of here. Um, <laughs> I just can't see him doing that. Um, I got 12 pages left. <laughs> yeah. But that is like that, that passage right there is a very, like someone has definitely experienced that before. Like there's a knowledge to that. There's an intuition and that's, uh, you know, it's all over this book. I think that's, there's a lot to that. And it's even with like the stuff with grief, like um, when, uh, you know, on page 66, he talks about the, the, the tasty munch uh, McNut, mixed nuts. Ah. Uh, the can was labeled tasty munch mixed nuts. Jesus Christ. It's hard you to mean say. Mixed, be- <laughs> mixed beans. I think you mean the mixed beans. Tasty munch. Uh, Alan twist off the top and five feet of compressed green snake le- leapt out and struck the windshield and rebounded in his lap. Alan looked at it, heard his son, his dead son's laughter inside his head and began to cry. His weeping was undramatic, silent and exhausted. It seemed that his tears had a lot in common with the possessions of his dead loved ones. You never got to end. You never got to the end of them. There were too many. And just when you started to relax and think that it was finally over, the joint was clean. You found one more and one more and one more. Why had he let Todd buy the goddamn thing? Why was it still in the goddamn glove compartment? And why had he taken the goddamn wagon in the first place? 
He pulled his handkerchief out of his back pocket and mopped the tears from his face. Then slowly, he jammed the snake, just cheap green crepe paper with a metal spring wound up inside it, back into the bogus mixed nuts can. He screwed on the top and bounced the can thoughtfully on his hand. Throw the goddamn thing away. It's like he really gets to the core of like why we continue to keep doing these things again and again yeah. and again. And I, I, it, that stuff is like when I talk about like how I don't really give a shit about the ending, it's like, it's because that you get these sort of like, you know, moments. Right. And that's so much more valuable than, you know, whether Gaunt's like a mm-hmm. gnome or uh, yeah. whether Gaunt's uh, you know, the tall man. <laughs> no, I think that's the most valuable question posed by the book. Uh, I, one other moment for me, and I think we talk about this very often on episodes um, that I've been on at least particularly Cujo about how good King is at bringing up, a moment of the past that is now inaccessible and just how maddening and, and bitter making that is. Um, on 234 of the Viking, Polly sat with her hands resting on the arms of the chair like lumps of cast off driftwood and looked longingly across the room at the couch where she and Alan had made love Friday night. Her hands hadn't hurt at all then, and that already seemed like a thousand years ago. It occurred to her that pleasure, no matter how deep, was a ghostly, ephemeral thing. Love might make the world go round, but she was convinced it was the cries of the badly wounded and deeply afflicted which spun the universe on the great glass pole of its axis. Oh, you stupid couch, she thought. Oh, you stupid empty couch. What good are you to me now? And it's just, it's so sad. And I do feel like it is true that when we are in the midst of suffering or past it, we can remember it with much more clarity and much more fear and much more severity in a way that affects our current actions than the way in which we can recall pleasure and have that dictate our lives and the way in which we can motivate ourselves to act differently um, by looking at a positive moment in the past. Um, Mm. It's, it's just deeply cynical, but also very true. It just always reminds me of the moment in Cujo where she's remembering the can sitting at her house and Mm -hmm. at home, she's trapped in the, in the car. Mm. Yeah. 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 Uh, Any other word processor? No, that we I, want to share? I got a chill down my spine. Yeah, I do too. I think uh, I hear the rusty gates of the cemetery calling. Uh, shall we? <laughs> we shall. <laughs> What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Whatever lives in the ground beyond the pet cemetery ain't human at all. The simplest transmission <laughs> is the best. I love it. I love, love it. it. Welcome to the cemetery. This is where we talk about the spookiest moments in a book. Uh, the things that, you know, kept us awake at night that wasn't uh, are the nagging voice of depression. Well, you know, it's funny that Mel just mentioned Cujo, yeah, Cujo and the Camber Ranch, because that I feel is the scariest moment of this entire book. Uh, the Cujo cameo, the Cujo cameo, Cujo cam, Cujo comes wild. back, Cujo, Cujo comes back. He's, he's back, baby. <laughs> we we thought we, he was gone. We've been putting it Cujo out into the ether, and uh, King heard us, and he brought Cujo back. <laughs> totally forgot about this, so it was a fun fun to revisit. I, I just think the whole. I mean, it's a long section, yeah. So I don't know if we need to read all of it. No, we don't but, read all of it. Um, that that whole sequence, though, of just when you you know, there's a the section on uh, page six twelve. It's the idea is that Polly goes back yeah. to the Camber Ranch, which is already such a cool idea because you've been yeah. hearing about it the whole book, yeah. And you're hearing little bits and pieces about the aftermath of the Camber family, which we'll talk about in King's Dominion. But to actually go back to that setting and all the the 
the the little bits and pieces that we know and remember from Kuja, which is still, I mean, we, I was thinking about it. It's really crazy how long ago that was when we read it. We read it in August of 2017. Oh, wow. It's now January of 2020. So, like, it just was really kind of co- cool and nostalgic to go back there, too. But there's just some really, really cool, um, creepy descriptions of this whole area. Um, and uh, on page 612, King writes, At that moment, the growling sounded low. Wait. At that moment, the growling sound, low like an idling outboard motor, rose from the hot, dark maw of the barn again. It wasn't her imagination, and it wasn't a creaking board. It was a dog! Polly looked that way, frightened, and saw two sunken red circles of light peering out at her from the darkness. Like... And you know, like we always say, and we just mentioned in the last episode, if it's if it's uh you know it's there, it's there. Like yeah. you know, King is in, you know. <laughs> if it's, it's there, it's there. It's there. It is what it is. Uh, there, there, in, it's there. In, in Do you think that? Um, I, I have a story that I tell myself in my head. This is a very like Mike take that Cujo to King is indeed one of the scarier specters to summon because he doesn't remember writing the book, and so it feels exterior to his creation like Mm -hmm. to even look back at Cujo and put it in and reference it in another book must feel very strange for him right think about that that is actually really a lot he does yeah yeah and it and you know but there's also a tragedy to that horror too you know because it's like an innocent thing that was turned evil Mm -hmm. and it's also you know an animal and animals are inherently more innocent well if we look at like what the history of Cujo is like it's supposed to be like Frank Dodd so if it is indeed the spirit of Frank Dodd that's in Cujo or the, you know, that's what they, uh, that was like the kind of like. Fun. So listen, the rabies so I, is Frank Dodd is Cujo and the gnome is gone. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> no, the, 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 the spirit of Dodd possibly being in, in Cujo. When is that mentioned? I thought that was mentioned in this book and I don't think it was. No, it's is not. Is that mentioned anywhere else? Or it, is that just like a fan theory? It's a, it's more of, um, I, I want to say was it mentioned I like in the that. dark half? perhaps or in one of the short stories maybe after it's, maybe it's maybe it's a dark half. it's definitely mentioned in one of the books they, they talk about just... like they talk about how it was like the evil sp- I, I caffrey would know but they talk about how yeah. like it had the 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 spirit of like um you know the the killer that that, that claimed castle that Rock, does sound know. like some fan theory bullshit though. but it is probably fan theory bullshit i mean but it I'm makes no it. sense but it's I love fun it. i yeah. love it yeah it makes total sense in this universe we're in kings especially yeah. in castle rock i want to say they it's when they describe the 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 sort of knowledge and the the way that it kills that's yeah. like very like dodd like or something mm-hmm. like that but or has well, like we also a, get the like dodd might be in t- in tad's closet right yes, like there's yeah. i mean i don't know right, there's yeah. a, he's all over i i view dodd as more of a symptom of the same larger thing that contributes to all of those things mm-hmm. yeah right like it's yeah. just like the the disease that covers castle rock yeah, yeah. what um, else scared people i agree Kujo moment is very scary i've got some like unsettling like weird real moments where like on page 176 when alan is worrying that his son might have been burned to death reaching for the seatbelt. Oh, yeah. Oh, that, yeah. That Dude, section like, is That is that whole horrible. Section. That's why I couldn't believe you made it part of your fucking fake name, man. Look. <laughs> really got hey, me. listen. We got to bring the laughs as much as the, the terror. Uh, <laughs> on page 619, uh, when Cora is dying... And she says, I'm coming to you, Elvis. She try, She says, I'm coming to you, Elvis, she, she tried to say. But something seemed terribly wrong. There seemed to be only darkness and no one in it but her. And it's just like these weird last gasps of breath where you realize it's the dupe. You know, you realize you've been duped and like there is nothing. Like you, this is all for nothing. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, 
which is really awful. And, uh, of course, uh, Rusk, Brian Rusk blowing his head off is uh, just, that was when, that for me was the most terrifying part of the book. When his brother talks it. about it to Alan though, yeah. it's like devastating when he's like, yeah. it wasn't just blood. Like, yeah. you know, also... I've got brothers and not that you have, Do you? I don't Do think that, <laughs> I don't think you have to have a sibling to feel this, but like, if I was that age and I walked in and saw my brother do that, like, forget it. I'd be in the nut house. Like, I don't know yeah. how, I don't know how you come or I don't know how you are able to survive something like that. When you don't have the, you don't have, you haven't learned the things that you need to, in order to, to battle something, seeing something like that at that age, you know? Yeah. And that was just terrifying. I felt so bad for that younger brother and, and, and Brian, obviously. But yeah, I just thought that was creepy as hell oh, no, his, his, about his, his life is ruined um oh <laughs> well it reminds I mean, me of well it, it almost just feels like a cruel subversion of what he did in the tommy knockers which is in the tommy knockers like spoiler yeah. alert jump ahead 30 seconds if you don't want it spoiled but it's like um uh the two brothers in that are the two like kids are the only ones who basically survive from the town and they're reunited in the end which uh in this it's very different because the town comes out mostly all i mean not but like but the these two children are absolutely ruined. Yeah. And so it's like, I think after having read Tommy knockers, I was shocked that he went there with yeah. this because I was like, mm. well, if he saved them and Tommy knockers, like he did, it's like, uh, he won't do that to Brian. But I, I think this is the and darkest if, moment of the entire book. It's the, oh, it's sure. the darkest moment in yeah, the entire absolutely. book. And one of the darkest moments, I think in King's Canon, well, a sense like maybe yeah. even pet cemetery. And like, that's where I think like, it's really hard for me to just, Except the satire humor yeah, kind of exactly event. and that it's there i'm not saying it's not there but it's like when you go that dark uh you you were in horror territory yeah. you know i was so. gonna say if i hadn't been told that this book was a satire and i was asked <laughs> which of the two books tommy knockers or needful things yeah. is a satire like tommy knockers by a mile yeah obviously. what if what if when brian like pulled the trigger like you know like uh like flowers came out or something oh, like boy. that you know like <laughs> And Alan's like, I got, I got it, you know. Alan's finger guns, abracadabra. Yeah, exactly. It could have worked. Oh boy. Um, What was the scary stuff? Yeah, yeah. For me, I think I talked about this a little bit last week, but the general concept that the things in Needful Things, the product, is sort of weirdly ephemeral. Is not the right word, but like amorphous. Mm -hmm. And I love that whole concept, but. This part really early in the book, I I love it. And it, it just kind of sends chills up my spine. But this is when Brian first goes in the store and or he's not in the store yet, but he's looking through the oh, window. Yeah. And yeah. he says, uh, uh, OK, so Brian was, after all, actually seeing the inside of the new store. His mother would talk to him the rest of the afternoon when she heard that. The maddening part was this. He wasn't sure exactly what he was seeing. There were ha- there were half a dozen items in the display cases and the spotlights were trained on them. A kind of trial run, probably. But he couldn't tell what they were. He could, however, tell what they weren't. Spool beds and moldy crank telephones. And that's just a little bit, but it's that whole concept of like staring at something and not like not perceiving it, not knowing exactly what you're looking at. And it reminds me of later when uh, Leland's talking to Ace and he calls them, they're just gray things is what he calls them. And like Mm -hmm. that to me is a very unnerving idea that, uh, that these are just these sort of like amorphous gray things that exist in these cases. And they, and they are both, uh, you know, what we see in the mind's eye, but also, uh, you know, like 
you look at something and you're it's like you're just staring at a blob or something you know it's yeah. it's a very unnerving yeah. idea to me so no i really like that yeah his whole his whole first experience i think it's such a great way to start the book with his with brian's experience because what, like with everyone else when you know they're like oh you know the foxtail or, or this or that or the the, the fishing rod they, it's the item, but it's not really the item. It's it's what it's what it stands for with a lot of these people. It's what the, what the hope of maybe getting your life back together or yeah. whatever it is. But for Brian, when he goes there, yeah, none of these things make sense, and everything is kind of muddy and weird because he's so innocent that it like Gaunt has to talk to him to figure out what he actually wants, and it's just a baseball card. Yeah, it's not like something that represents something bigger. It's just like this cool baseball card with his signature on it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, so that, that, that was really creepy that the store almost didn't make sense. No. And the store at the store is, is at its, is at its, I feel at that point, right out the gate is kind of at its peak creepiness. Like he walks in and I think the door, the door closes on its own, but he yeah. doesn't even notice it. Cause yeah. he's just like, like you get right out of the gate that there's something off about the store and it's creepy and it's scary and creepy and, and otherworldly. And they're not trying to like, you know, hide that fact right out the gate. I mean, I think that's creepy. It's pretty helpful too. Cause like later on when Ace notes that, uh, he's able to put up a sign without any, uh, sticky adhesiveness too. <laughs> yeah. Like that little, like, well, I think the detail. store's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah. weird. Well, that's like, one uh, of my favorite parts is Ace here. like kind of, uh, uh, rationalizing needful things when he's in there because, like Gaunt's not really trying to hide the no. sort of yeah. weird supernatural aspect of it, and and Ace is just like, all right, yeah. <laughs> uh, talked yeah. about that last time, but their weird relationship is so funny. Like, I love it. Like they're just like two ships of evil passing in the night. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, they're I not going to pretend with each other. But Gaunt is stronger, so he's going to strong arm Ace into working for him. And Ace is just like, I guess I'm going to fucking do this. Yeah, like, and it doesn't really he doesn't really have anything that. Ace needs other than the cocaine. I mean, other than I mean, he got, obviously he gives him the book and stuff with the the because he needs the money. Well, yeah, he he wants the the money that was buried and he yeah. wants that legacy. I, I I do wish that Ace would have walked around and been like, you know, the store is kind of a piece of shit compared to my uh my pappy store. Uh, <laughs> my pappy my, <laughs> that burned down. Like, what, Pat the devil or something? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Pat yeah, Merrill. Uh, Mel, do you have any spooky cemeteries? Sure. I mean, just. The brief overview of like bigger ones. I really got scared by Polly's arthritis. The idea of like how much, how much suffering could I actually endure before I would put on this like very clearly evil yeah. medallion? Probably. <laughs> um, like I just feel like when you are in pain, you become a different person, and that's scary to me. You, your moral compass gets scooched visibly, visible degrees, like to another direction, which is which is scary. Oh yeah. Um, the, the when the bartender is like dying and he can't get through because it's, it's like a small town and like one emergency is too much for them to handle. Yeah. Why the, the, the like deputy even picks up the phone and is like, call back later. Like we have a situation here. Like we can't <laughs> handle it. And he's like dying on the floor. Like that really messed with me. I felt so bad for him. Yeah. Um, and that that just kind of drove home the whole like small towns are not what they used to be like now we have cell phones but this situation you are totally marooned that's really scary it's like when you are knocking on the houses in a horror film and no one's answering yeah um annie's death which mac already mentioned i don't want to read any of that it's like very upsetting it is Uh, yeah i love the tape recorder (laughs) yeah i do too (laughs) it's like it's really old but it's clearly addressed to ace and he can't figure that out. Like that was just a fun bit of scariness. Well, it's to funny me. now because it's so antiquated. Because it's like you could have easily pulled that off now, like yeah. with like technology. Yeah. But at that yeah. time, it's just like, wait a second, 
that's the that that line that 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 crosses that the line. is a really creepy sequence. Yeah. that whole uh, scene is pretty fun. Uh, love, the, fact Mel- that, the fact that Ace is unnerved and yeah. scared that that gave it the gravity that I that I like if he scared, deserved, you know, I'd be booting my yeah. pants. But um. Mel, you said you knew who the because uh, there's that graffiti on the wall, the Yog Sothoth mm-hmm. rules. Like, is that's a Lovecraftian figure? Mm-hmm. He's one of the elder gods. I uh, what do you think that? Why is that there? Well, I think. King loves Lovecraft and he mentions him like we talked in the last episode about how Randall Flagg one of his many names is Nyarlathotep the crawling chaos Mm -hmm. so I think King really likes undergirding his world with larger mythologies always implying that there is something bigger at play that these forces have come from somewhere yeah and they are related like in the way that Nyarlathotep and Yogg-Sothoth are like literally related I think it's just a stand-in for gigantic dark incomprehensible forces and i you know i stopped there and was like that's cool (laughs) (laughs) i love that little moment yeah it's like because i just love those those moments when king can point towards like a larger evil that you know like we're just glancing off the side of a much larger like uh evil which is always something he's been so good at yeah Do we? There are a lot of gross moments in this book. Like we do not need to read them, but I, in particular, the guts hanging out of yeah. Nettie. Um, he loves that. Very upsetting. Very upsetting. Yeah. Uh, the the church the church sequence where the he he says something like large ragdolls that had learned to vomit as the women fell out of the window onto the lawn. Like just like Ugh. that is a disgusting sequence. Um, when Hugh gets shot by the sawed off shotgun, they describe his uh, his chest is like like. God, how did he phrase it? Like a desiccated red swamp or something. Uh, and it's uh, like, I know. I, it made me like, it made me like my lips curl. I was like, some, Jesus. Something that I like cringed at was when um, that guy um, severs Lynn's spinal cord with his pocket knife. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was like, oh. <laughs> like, that's just like so, like, I could just, you just see that happening. Just so like gritty. the effort to do that. Like, it's mm-hmm. just, yeah, it's gritty. There's even disgusting. a little moment that's, that's like he felt his lip split open across his teeth. Like, mm-hmm. that's like, a pretty big split. It's disgusting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, how about when Polly bites Ace's hand and it says like her teeth go up, going up to the gums. Yeah. Like, Hey, I don't even think that's possible. <laughs> how about when Polly bites down on that spider? Oh yeah. yeah that's well, the whole spider cool. sequence awesome. is pretty cool. The spider. I, and I, and I almost Asuka. think like, I feel like he reuses that sequence for Dreamcatcher because it's very similar. Um, yeah. Like, yeah. Using, using like the, the, um, plunger, the plunger and everything. But, uh, I yeah, I thought that that scene was really intense in the way that they kept cross cutting between other like sequences and going yeah, back to her. That's very um, cinematic. And the idea too. of the spider yeah. growing, like if you remade this, like that would be such a cool image to do. Seriously, um, you know, it's insane. I mean, they probably didn't have the budget, but no, it's kind of insane no. to me that they couldn't do that. Like, cause yeah, that whole section and just when she describes biting it and it it fills her mouth with like taste of like yeah. bitter tea or something. Like, she holds onto it and tea. then spits it. And stuff. Oh god, uh, just so... yeah, God. I just uh, remember thinking, I'm like, I'm like, don't. Like- in my mind, I'm just like, don't swallow any of it. Yeah, right. <laughs> now, I've got two. I've got two more. I I kept them to the end so that Randall could cover his ears. Oh, oh yeah. Okay, I literally might like need to leave the room. I, we don't have to go you into it to too them. deep. Can I just? Me- I'm not gonna go. Yeah. I'm not gonna read the descriptions. Okay, I'm just yeah. gonna mention the two things. I'm very very sensitive to animal violence, yeah. listeners. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> Cora kicking a cat. 
And oh, that yeah, that yeah. Garfield. And Garfield. Garfield. Well, that's almost played for comedy, so I'm I'm a little bit okay with that. Uh, she gave when, she came back and gave her you know gave Garfield some lasagna. Oh God, Garfield. And then uh, I'll just mention the the person and the, I'll mention the person and the weapon, a Hugh Priest and a corkscrew. Yeah. That's all mean. I gotta say. That mean. is just, that is that was that was hard for me, and I have no problem with animal violence. I was. I mean, <laughs> you know who else does. You know who else has no problem with animal violence? <laughs> Serial killers. <Yeah. laughs> hey, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> what, I just, what did you I just want to read the bit that we mentioned last time, which still gets to me and I think is, is the creepiest Mr. Gaunt moment and the best moment when he stands in for something bigger than himself as a sort of like unfeeling force of commerce, which is when Slopey says, like, I'll do anything to anyone. I hate to stutter. Like, please take it away. And Mr. Gaunt says on 432 of the Viking, um, or Slopey says, couldn't you, I mean, do you ever just give things away, Mr. Gaunt? Leland Gaunt's face grew deeply sorrowful. Oh, Slopey, how often I've thought of it. And with such longing, there is a deep untapped well of charity in my heart. But, but, it just wouldn't be business, Mr. Gaunt finished. He favored Slopey with a compassionate smile, but his eyes sparkled so wolfishly that Slopey took a step backward. You understand, don't you? Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> so mean. Uh, like, what a little shit. I I love uh, when King goes full Bradbury, um, when Brian Rusk starts uh, having more nightmares about Gaunt. On, uh, on page 122. The baseball uh, this game? Is, uh, this is... Uh, might be the baseball game. I can't remember. Um, but it says, uh, he saw a long black car, a Cadillac, or maybe a Lincoln Mark IV, Pulling up in front of his house, the driver's door opened and Mr. Leland Gaunt stepped out. Only Gaunt was no longer wearing a smoking jacket like the one Sherlock Holmes wore in some of the stories. Mr. Gaunt, who now strode across the landscape of Brian's imagination, wore a formidable black suit, the suit of a funeral director, and his face was no longer friendly. His dark blue eyes were even darker in anger, and his lips had pulled back from his crooked teeth, but not in a smile. His long, thin legs went scissoring up the walk to the rusk door and the shadow man attached to his heels looked like a hangman in a horror movie like oh that is such a fucking that's cool description yeah that's such a great and it's so like it's so old school like bradbury something like this way um but the 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 tall i've said it multiple times in on this podcast but like one of my biggest fears growing up was uh abraham lincoln yeah. uh, because he's tall thin um and just like has that like really creepy demeanor to him and it's so, like the idea of this like tall presence like walking across like the, the this like sunlit like lawn is just such a creepy juxtaposition. Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. I still I love that. I love every time that you bring up that you were scared of Abraham Lincoln. Terrified. I had a the hat. The hat is very scary. The hat and uh, I would have it. He would open the closet door and there'd be chains like Hellraiser inside. The scariest yeah. part. That is weird. Chains like uh, Hellraiser. Yeah, it was, it was looking at Pinhead right above you. On it was, the wall and here. I do have Pinhead. Yeah. The scariest part for me was when Mr. Gaunt revealed he has an alien face. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Um, it's also Starfield references hit home for me here because Mike's icon on Skype is like yeah. <laughs> oh, is lasagna Garfield? cat. Like, lasagna Garfield cat. Garfield yeah. YouTube scene. I don't know. I love Eat it. Lasagna cat's the best. Every time I'm recording an episode, just know that I'm looking at this John, weird John Arbuckle. <laughs> I'm Garfield. I'm Garfield. Uh, I love it. I would say my out of all, I think I, I cringed every time Polly described her pain or like, or King described Polly's pain. Uh, but the one that I think, Ooh, takes I the think cake, I've got the same one. Go for it. Mine is on page 313. 
Her hands felt like crude ceramic figures baked until they were on the verge of cracking. The pain was both hot and cold, set deep in her flesh like complex networks of poisoned wires. She held her hands up despairingly, scarecrow hands, awful deformed hands, and downstairs the doorbell chimed again. She uttered a distracted little cry. Like, that's just awful. Awful. That that is a really good one. I... I, um... I don't have the actual line, but it, it's uh, when Gaunt comments on her hands swelling up like inner tubes of poison gas. Oh. And just like that's the good. idea that's just like, uh, and, and that's, that is a line he says to her. I think yeah. that's one of the, one of the more creepy things in this book for me was Gaunt's interactions with people after he's already given them the item, his quick, the, how quick it will turn and he'll say some really awful thing to them and they just like accept it because yeah. they're just like already under the trance, you know, mm-hmm. but it's like really off-putting for the reader. Cause there's some of the things he says and some of the things he makes them do, like you were mentioning earlier, Randall, is just, uh, it's just, uh, it's just weird. It's off-putting. I, I thought it was really kind of a cool scene. Maybe not so, I guess it's creepy. Um, was just when Pangborn finally does go to the store and he's literally standing right in front of him and doesn't see him. Um, oh yeah. Which is oh, such yeah. a cool little, yeah. like, kind of a Halloween H2O moment. Um, he was like almost like acting like Michael Myers in this sequence where he's, yeah. I mean, just the fact that he's staring right in front of him and he, and oh, Painborn almost gets like, like a little hint of it. Like, oh wait, there is someone in there, but no, it just looks like me. Like I thought that was like a really cool sequence that you could do in film. Yeah. And it would look yeah. awesome. Like it yeah. just it had that real, no music, just kind of silence. You hear the wind it would be very effective. Um, I like this little bit. It's kind of, I don't know. I don't know why I like it. Maybe it's not good, but I like it. Uh, that, was a, that was a fun, <laughs> Thanks. fun preface. Good intro. You really sold me. Fun if preface. you read the fucking gnome passage. <laughs> yeah, please, please. No, he, he's much earlier in the book. He's much no, earlier no, in the no, book. no, no, no. Matt can see I'm, I'm, I've got many pages left till the end. Uh, this is 452. It's when uh, Everett, who I think, what, he's the dentist or something? Uh, he is in needful things and i just thought this paragraph was was kind of it hit me like the last sentence hit me once he was sitting behind the wheel again the first thing Everett did was unlock the glove compartment put the envelope with lovey written on the front in and take the pipe out one thing he did remember was mr gaunt's teasing him saying that arthur conan doyle had once owned the pipe and he had almost believed him how silly you only had to put it in your mouth and clamp your teeth on the stem to know better the original owner of this pipe had been herman goring uh the famous nazi which to me was just kind of a, a, a yeah, gut punch. And yeah. just the way it's written where it's like, well, of course you put your teeth on it and you know this belonged to a famous Nazi. You does know? that mean that he loves that it belongs to a famous Nazi? Or does is he seeing the sinister nature of the object? It seems like he's into it. I think he's into it. And because he, he's saying that Mr. Gaunt was teasing him that Arthur Conan Doyle owned it. So I don't know, honestly, like reading it, and I felt this way when I read it first too. It's like, I'm not sure. And I think that's why I said like, maybe this isn't good, but... Because I don't really know what they're getting at there, like whether he's into it having belonged to a Nazi or if that's the narrator having a little fun. But it's like, uh, it's just that the gut punch of that is just a little bit unnerving. It'd to be me. very yeah. Castle Rock to be like, by the way, this man's a secret Nazi. And that's kind of scary. So <laughs> well, sure. when you've got when you when you've got two school teachers who deal cocaine to everybody and also are way into kitty porn, then yeah, yeah, the whole kitty porn, all the descriptions of the kitty porn is really like. I mean, I don't even think that fits in pound cake at all. I think it's actually like pretty dark and oh, disturbing. Or yeah, the photos I don't have of like a woman cake. having sex with a dog. Yeah, like, like no, yeah, that, thank what you. What a weird. Well, especially where yeah. it's buried too. Like yeah. that would be really eerie to just to see like be like, wow, this woman's having sex with a dog, and there's a dog that killed all these people here too. Like, um, maybe it was Cooge in the photo. It says something like the dogs. Maybe it was Cooge. Maybe. 
it was cool. In its eyes to be embarrassed. Yes. Oh, oh I know. God. Yeah, that was like that. Like killed me. Well, they no, they say though that it is cool because when they flip the flip it around, he signed as his paw. <laughs> <laughs> Love you. <laughs> Actually, the breed of the dog is specified, and it's not a Saint Bernard. So. It's a collie, right? Your, your fan theory is rejected. Yes, uh, I wish it was Cooch, though. <laughs> we'll, um, we'll be signing fan art with Cooch's puppet. Oh man! Speaking of sexy things. So. Oh, oh um, God! Any other cemeteries? Um, I thought that, like, when Cora dies, and and she's like, "Oh, I want to go to Elvis." And it's just darkness. It kind of reminded me of um, what happens to like Sue Snell um, at the end of Carrie, where she like mm. realizes that like in death there is just ice, there's just yeah. nothing. It's yeah. just like, yeah. and that's kind of kind of a fucked up. It almost reminds me of like the jaunt in that way that you just kind of think about like the afterlife and like this eternity of nothing. Like, yeah. fucking Christ. Well, I'd rather have that than hell, but still terrifying. Yeah. Uh, any other terrifying things from you, fine folks? I see some red just, eyes. Just Buster taking a hammer to his poor wife. Oh, Ooh, Jesus. yeah, that whole sequence oh. is awful. Damn. Even yeah. just the idea of her laying alone with that doll is like really like the, oh, the infantilization yeah, yeah. of that yeah. is just really ugh. It sticks with me. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have one last one. Um, so at the end, Leland Gaunt turns into a little dwarf, <laughs> and it's crazy that his actual like. You know, actual form is this tiny little dwarf who drives it's a also, carriage. It, it's also weird because it's scary for me on a different level where I, I'm just scared that you actually think that that's real. <laughs> I, I, I say, you promised. You promised. I, I don't know if hey, uh, Gaunt promised a lot of things in this book, too. Maybe and, I'm the Mr. Gaunt of this podcast. Uh, I don't know if it's really tied to this story so much, but um, there is a sequence at the end of Tim Burton's Beetlejuice in which uh, they're having a wedding. <laughs> And it's the same guy. And I think it's the same I think guy. It's, a crossover. it's Leland Gunn. Because right. they came out around the same time, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was around the same like, time. Like, when did Beetlejuice come out? I think 88, maybe 87, 88. So, yeah, so that's clearly the inspiration. It's the inspiration. It's yeah. the same character canonically. Yeah. He probably had it on VHS. When You know when McDonald's used to give uh, VHS tapes? Uh, no, for... Oh, we have to stop. All right. Yeah, <laughs> what, I love yeah, that. What's, what's the, what's yeah, the I think we're a little bit winded from walking through the cemetery, and we need a snack to pick ourselves up. Ooh. And uh, you know what's on the menu? Pound cake. After all you've been taught, everyone in bad mama, everything in the sin. Come to your closet and pray. Ask to be forgiven. He's a nice boy, mama. You like him. You really like him, mama. Welcome to Pound Cake. This is the section. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to Pound Cake. Welcome to Pound Cake. Uh, welcome to Pound Cake. This is the section where we talk about uh, the stuff that made us laugh. Uh, this, the the stuff that made us cringe a little bit, not misery per se, but more so things that were just like Stevie, what are you doing? Yeah. This is a little bit weird. I feel like we're gonna have uh, a good, a good, yeah. a, a good amount. So who wants to kick things off? Mike? No, Mel, you go. Okay, can we start with? Well, I'll let someone else take Brian's dream, which is just, oh, I'm which all is just over great. It. Um, I literally, with- I literally just looked at my computer and I saw Brian's little boner. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Um, I'll go with, I mean, we'll start off, you know, something easy, something kind of just like painless and, and dumb, which is Alan and, and Polly's sex scene. Um, oh, you know, yeah. there are tender moments in here, but the fact that he is like, can clearly like just doesn't know what specifically would get a woman off in this position. And he, so he resorts to phrases like, 
Um, the thumb of his other hand was mm. doing things to her down there, things she had never even considered. <laughs> Keep in mind, she's wearing hmm. jeans. Yeah. Like, I don't know. And this whole thing know. where Maybe he's like, Alan's got the magic, though. Back and forth <laughs> on his hand. I mean, it sounds objectively great, but <laughs> she then she says, Oh my God, Alan, I'll never wash these jeans. Again. Uh, that, <laughs> Which is ridiculous. That is classic. <laughs> like, come on. I always love that kind of shit. Or like, like, uh, I feel like, like, remember that bit in bad Santa when he's like, when he's like banging oh. a woman, and he says something like, "You won't shit, shit right, right for, for a week weeks. or something." Oh, it's <laughs> disgusting. It's so like this filthy. I kind of love it. Um, yeah, I'll I'll read about Brian's little boner. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh God. His little dream. Um, it's just I don't know. I think it's it's because it's like a weird fetishistic dream yeah. where Sally is like is like chiding him in class. Yeah. But then uh, so. He was sitting in the back row of the basement room where the speech therapy classes were held, and he had done something wrong, terribly wrong by the sound of Miss Ratcliffe's voice, but he didn't know what it was until he stood up. Then he saw that he was naked. A horrible wave of shame swept over him, but he felt excited, too. When he looked down at his penis and saw it starting to stiffen, he felt both alarmed and thrilled. And then, uh, and then oh. just like, but then all the kids are in the room, too. He advanced slowly to the front of the room while the others, Sally Myers, Donnie Frankel, and poor old half-bright Slopey Dodd goggled at him. And then, like... Uh, There's also a line that's really gross in this. What that, is like, it? It's just clo- so king where it's just like, she went on pulling Brian's pudding. Oh, yeah, spoke. yeah, I have that. It's oh, so yeah, fucking yeah. gross. She went like, pulling Brian's pudding. <laughs> yeah, it is. I just remember thinking it was weird when I was young and I read this, too, because I'm just like, I'm like, why is he getting off on shame? But now that I'm adult, uh, you're yeah. like, oh, I, get <laughs> it. I think I get I it. Get well, it. wait, that's a bad it. feeling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, so anyways, fun little piece of pancake. And then I also just thought it was weird later that King just felt to add that when Brian was throwing the mud, he had a boner. Mm-hmm. So also hey, when he wakes up, one of the times he wakes up, he it says, and his penis was a small, hard branch inside his pajama trousers. Small, hard branch. <laughs> branch. Oh, uh, he was that, that, you know, when that happened, he was just like looking outside the window and he's like, synonym for boner. <laughs> How about like when a- Alan yells <laughs> tree uh, on page 440 he yells more. He said with a leer cleavage. We want cleavage. Oh, yeah. It's just like people don't talk like that. You said <laughs> Alan? Alan yells I'm pretty sure when he's yeah, in the he car does. with Polly, yeah. he like yells uh-huh. that out because she's showing him the necklace and he think and he, she kind of like unbuttons her mm-hmm. blouse a little bit. I actually think and then, their sex and he's joke I mean he is joking at this moment but it's still like weird like I was reading that sex weird. scene Mike going I bet Mike thinks this is really I hard. love I love a good couple sex scene. You know Pet Cemetery is still number 1 for me but this is this is kind of close for me. Um what isn't close for me is on page 133 uh with Gaunt and Myra um Oof. where uh <laughs> Uh, we already mentioned this scene, but just the one line is is pretty king. Um, and then, and you'll have, you'll have to throw throw in a blowjob, of course. Gaunt said, grinning down at her. She looked up at him, her mouth a perfect O. What did you say? She whispered. Blow me! He shouted down at her. Fillet me! Open that gorgeous metal filled mouth of yours and gobble my crank. <laughs> Oh my god! Gobble Good my Lord. crank. Gobble my. He crank. likes the gobbling tied with oral sex. Yeah, he uses the go- like gobble gobbling's all the in time. the stand. And yeah. we talked about it. I think it's in Tommy Knockers too. Oh really? I could be wrong. I know it pops up in several things. Uh, the gobble gobble. Get, um, 
I really want to talk about Solid Hawk and Loin for a moment. Mm-hmm. Do it. Oh, this, go for it. I laughed out loud so hard at these lines starting on 366. Um, he and Sally had had some pretty hot sessions, but they had never gone all the way. Lester usually returned home after these sessions in a state of total discomposure, his brain bursting with joy and his balls bursting with frustrated jizz, (laughs) dreaming of the night not too far away now when he wouldn't have to stop. He sometimes wondered if he might not drown her the first time they actually did it. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) Disgusting. I love that did it is capitalized. Capital, capital D, capital I. I love the parallelism of his brain is bursting with joy, (laughs) but his balls are bursting with frustrated. The jizz is frustrated. Well, it reminds me of like, it's so, it's so dumb that it reminds me of the first scary movie when the guy, uh, uh, sex and then his jizz like cakes her to the ceiling. It's so gross, (laughs) but I love it. Uh, I had one that's not. It's not sexually related, but it, it made me laugh. I just cracked up. And it's because it's the beginning of a chapter. It's so blunt. It said, Ace Merrill rolled out of bed around, oh. the si- around the same time that Brian Russ was blowing his head off 30 miles away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, Jesus, King. Like, we got it. The kid killed himself. That's so, that's so intense. I think I laughed at that, too. But that whole like, description of his apartment oh, is, man. like, so disgusting when he's talking about how, like, he doesn't yeah. flush. And, um, uh, he, speaking of bowel movements, there's a lot of uh, mentioning of shit in this. Yeah. You know, he doesn't disappoint I, there because he loves one. to fill people's pants. Page, um, you got one? No, you go for it. Go for Page it. Page 52 and Nettie, she says, oh, it gave me the backdoor trot. Yes. Oh, yeah, that made me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> and then I, she also says, uh, or she's thinking about Gaunt talking to her. Like, I'm going to hurt you, Nettie. I'm going to drag you into the back room and twist your nipples until you, you holler uncle. It's just like weird, <laughs> weird stuff. Well, they yeah. they, they kind of pl- uh, prey upon the um, the gaunt sexual deviancy in the movie. Um, oh, really? He like kisses Polly in a really weird way. It looks like he's oh. devouring her fucking head or something. But um, uh, speaking of shit, though, on oh, page yeah. 162, it had been a race to see if he could manage to drop his trousers before he filled them. Oh, yeah. That race, Norris <laughs> managed to win. But he hadn't looked like the the yeah whatever. But that's it. But like he poops on the the photo of George T. Nelson. Yeah, there's, there's that poop there. It's uh, yeah, and like but the way it's described is he's got these cramps and stuff yes. like that. I have to say, I'm just gonna throw it in pound cake because it's so silly. But that scene where Frank Jewett is behind the couch when yes cr- when Craig T. Nelson's sitting on it. Craig T. Nelson. Yeah, I'm just gonna say <laughs> Craig T. Nelson. Um, and it's just this like extremely long like. Uh, sequence that is so unnecessary i mean to me it's like a nightmare because like i'm very claustrophobic and it's effective in that sense but i'm also like dude polly's fighting a spider i don't need to watch this guy like you know like asphyxiate (laughs) and and yeah yeah uh but no um i just want to read this one really quick uh page 297 of pocketbooks um i just this is like a phrase that almost feels ahead of its time it was that sort of leap-before-you-look behavior, not Dick Duke Sheehan's puny little dingus, which had gotten her in trouble to begin with. <laughs> a, we're in the middle of Polly's backstory, and it, it's, like, fairly tragic, and there's yeah. a lot, you know, going on here. <laughs> and just so the phrase puny little dingus made me laugh. And dingus is a, is a, one of my favorite phrases for the penis. So, um, Just speaking of great phrases, I would really like um, one of us to do a dramatic reading of the fake letter to oh, Lester yes. Pratt. I have it. Uh, I have it in my notes. One second. This is so good. Okay. I just wrote hilarious next to this. Um, Okay. I'm going to read it. Very excited. 
Darling Les, Felicia took this when we were at the Tiger the other night. She said she ought to use it to blackmail us, but she was only teasing. She gave it to me, and I am giving it to you as a souvenir of our big night. It was terribly naughty of you to put your hand under my skirt like that, and then in quotes, right out in public. But it got me so hot. Besides, you are so strong. The more I looked at it, the more... Besides! (laughs) The more I looked at it, the more hot, in quotes, it started to make me. If you look close, you can see my underwear. It's a good thing Felicia wasn't around later when I wasn't wearing any three exclamation points. <laughs> I will s- and then the next sentence is just as a period. It's so weird. I will see you soon. <laughs> in the meantime, <laughs> keep this picture, quote, in, re- in remembrance of me. I will be thinking of you and your big thing. I better stop now before I get any hotter or I'll have to do something naughty. And please stop worrying about you know who. She is too busy going steady with Jesus to worry about us. I love it. <laughs> What about um, uh, on page 517 uh, when King talks about a momentary heart-stopping length of thigh? Oh, boy. That's pretty tame for this book. It is tame for this book. You know, you know when like... you go into coronary arrest because you see a girl's thigh? God, um, thigh! <laughs> like, I can see Ed Harris doing that. Uh, uh, pa- I, oh, oh, you go, Mac. Oh, just page 389 when Ace gets into the car, he says... This, uh, he thinks the sedan had the incomparable new car smell. Nothing like it in the world. And then in parentheses, except maybe for pussy. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's a King's Dominion. Wait, what? That's a King's Dominion. They also say that in Christine. Oh, oh there you go. Good memory on that one. That's, hey, that's, that's a really good. Ago. Yeah, that's a really good one. Um, uh, lots of boobs in this. I wrote down a few. Uh, I just remember. <laughs> 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 Although I forgot, like. When we meet Nan at the diner, I think in this, like her boobs are mentioned twice in one paragraph, which Whoa. made me laugh. Uh, but okay. Um, the Castle Rock Selectman and Select Woman shared a single full time secretary, a young woman with the exotic name of Ariadne St. Clair. She was a happy young woman, not overburdened with intelligence, but tireless and pleasing to look at. She had large breasts, which rose in soft, steep hills beneath an apparently endless supply of Angora sweaters. And lovely just skin. King writing his own softcore porn. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> and then, boobs and sweaters. And then uh, Sally, just for literally no reason. Let me see if I can find it. It's, uh, yeah, here we go. The name, okay. Uh, outside, droves of kids were shouting their way across the lawn to where the number two and number three buses idled sleepily at the curb. Sally's low heels clicked and clapped. She was holding a manila envelope in one hand. The name on this envelope, Frank Jewett, was turned in against her gently rounded breast. Yep, always like, no the reason. Always no the reason. Gotta have the breast. It's, like, it's rounded, there. but gently. <laughs> I, uh... it, we, we have to remember that, you know, he started out writing for like you know smut magazines it's and putting true. his short stories in there it which is, is one of the reasons that. why he's what is always this, like 20 years later like he can't grow as a writer <laughs> hey you know once once you go smut you don't go back um but i, I do like in, uh, one of the things that's very indicative of this is when he's talking about trooper morris um and on page 722 trooper morris flew backward against the hood of his cruiser and rolled into the street clutching the ruins of his sexual equipment and oh. trying to scream. Oh, that's like that's, I actually like the writing of that. I like the description, <laughs> but it is like a it is a very cemetery thing. But it, it it's it just shows that like that focus of like oh, I can't fuck. I'm useless without fuck. Sixty-seven at Cora, and once she was in Graceland again. 
relief, anticipation, and amazing horniness filled her. <laughs> ah. Amazing horniness. Oh, gosh, horniness. you know, I had page, page 111, <laughs> the Elvis dream. I, I, oh, I, I didn't, yeah. I, I, I just wrote read, but I, I, I can't, I can't. If you've read the book, you've read it, you know what I'm talking about. It's just over the top. I, but the thing is, like, Elvis is so tacky to me. Like, I, I can't stand Elvis. And, like, the idea that there's this, like, sexual tension tied to it two seems women, Two so of the campy. women in the town. Yeah, are, two like, of the women. With it. Which I is, like, I want to... Well, like, how unfulfilling are women. their real lives? You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. I do love, though, that they, they like, share the delusion. Like, when yes. they, like when Elvis, like, talks to her, yeah. like, as they're boning. It's like, no, that's oh, my oh, come on, baby. That shit is hilarious. <laughs> but I also just love, you read the quote earlier, but just the idea of, like, increasingly weirder sex yes. <laughs> with Elvis. <laughs> like, I love that that, uh, that at least is kept somewhat vague. Okay, so I know we didn't want to go too much about uh, the Jewett Craig T. Nelson stuff with the kitty porn because it is really unnerving and weird. But I will say that just this choice of phrasing, I can't ignore. Um, so this is after all the magazines have been spread throughout his office. He sat behind his desk and put the stack of magazines on the floor. He saw that the drawer they'd been in had been forced just as he had feared. He ripped open the envelope and spilled out the contents. Most of them are glossy photographs. Photographs of him and George T. Nelson at that party in Boston. They were cavorting with a number of nice young fellows. The oldest of the nice young oh, fellows go. might have been 12. And in each picture, oh. George T. Nelson's face was obscured, but Frank Jewett's was crystal clear. But it's just the phrase nice young fellows in yes. this context is to me um, maybe appropriate for the... Well, I, the thing is, it's not a, it might be appropriate for the character in, in uh, happier times, but he's so angry here. It still seems like a weird turn yeah. of phrase in the midst of this. So I think you've have you officially killed pound cake. I, <laughs> I, 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 I don't think I have any more. I didn't know where to put this. I think it's pound cake for <laughs> the, the modern era um, because it's the Joker, the Joker reference. Did you guys catch that? No, no. go for it. Yeah, um, go for it, Mel. On six forty, but the picture of Mister Gaunt, which had formed in his mind on the long wild ride from the hospital in Bridgeton, was that of Batman's nemesis, the Joker. Alan had an idea that he was dealing with the sort of man who would think installing a jet-powered backflow valve in a friend's toilet the very height of humor, and would have oh like that, the sort of fellow who would put a tack in your chair, stick a burning match in the sole of your shoe just for laughs, leave before you sat down, or notice that your socks were on fire and your pants cuffs were catching. Of course not. What fun would that be? All I could picture was Michael Caine being like, he was holding a diamond the size of a tangerine. <laughs> <laughs> Some people just want to watch the world burn. I just want to watch the world burn. They want to watch Love the world burn, it. Mr. Bain. Mr. Bain and Any <laughs> other pound cakes? Are we full? I'm actually wanting some pound cake. Um, not like the actual sex, but I mean like actual <laughs> pound cake. Oh, anyway. you're talking about the food pound cake. The food pound. I want something sweet, a sweet treat. Well, oh, maybe you could think treat. about that sweet treat as we take a walk around King's Dominion. There's another world out there. I know there is. Welcome to King's Dominion. Well, oh my God. it's the whole book. It's I have, the whole book. I have, I have so many. I have so many. It's insane. We don't even need to like... I don't think you need to get specific because there's so many that are repeated. Like, first of all, well, every I'm Castle gonna, Rock story. Oh, we got some weird I ones. I won't repeat things. I'll just, I'll try to, okay, well, obviously we have Cujo, Frank Dodd, Shawshank. They and mentioned Dead. all those things. We have yeah. 
I mean, you know, I mean, you know, it takes place in Castle Rock, so things like Metal Tiger and that and that stuff isn't really surprising because right. it's there. And then Pop Merrill, like, we get a lot of references to the Sundog and the Emporium Glorium burning down, like right from the get, right from the on get-go. like page eight of my book. It literally has this whole rundown. It's like, you know. I guess you'd oh, say, yeah, but not all our troubles in Castle Rock are ordinary. I got to see you straight on that. No one has forgotten Frank Dodd, the crossing guard who went crazy here 12 years ago and killed these women. And they haven't forgot the dog either. The one that came down with rabies and killed Joe Camber and the old rummy down the road from him. The dog killed good old Sheriff George Bannerman too. Alan Pangborn is doing that job these days. And he's a good man, but he won't ever stack up to Big George in the eyes of the town. Wasn't nothing ordinary about what happened to Reginald Pop Narrow either. Pop was the old miser who used to run the old, the town junk shop. The Emporium Glorium, it was called. Stood right where the vacant lot is across the street. The place burned down a while ago, but there are people in town who saw it, or claim they did anyway, who will tell you after a few beers down at the Mellow Tiger that it was a lot more than a simple fire that destroyed the Emporium Glorium and took Pop Merrill's life. Um, and then, you know, his nephew Ace, and they already mentioned that. So, like, within, like, eight pages, they're like, there's yeah, a roundup. The crazy. only one that's not really mentioned there is the Dark Half, which is acknowledged. Well, I, yeah, when, and I yeah. have a lot of... There's a lot of that. But, yeah, in um, 78, yeah, he directly mentions it. Uh, so the business with Thad Beaumont, uh, for instance, you really couldn't get that off your mind. What yeah. happened at their house by the lake and how after it was all over, he used to get drunk and call you. And then Ugh. his wife took the twins and left him. All of that added to the usual turnaround stuff or town or around town stuff kept you pretty busy, didn't it? So That was really sad to me because, mm-hmm. you know, and that were, were we all on the... Uh, I wasn't on Never guys, read it. Okay. That knowing the ending of that book and then having that be what that's what ended up what happened to Thad sad is so sad yeah yeah um and you, you kind of have the feeling that maybe things could, you know it's not like everything's just fine at the end of that book but you you kind of are left thinking oh well, you know maybe but yeah I thought that was really creepy for me um and and keeping with the dark half things love when uh, uh, Alan yells out at the end. The sparrows are flying again, Mr. Gaunt. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, so that was so cool. cool. Um, um, there's also another mention to um, the with with the dark half where you go into um, kind of just the stuff that it's actually um, that's actually stuck with Alan too. There was a, a section. Well, he has a couple was, of dreams. Yeah, yeah. Like the, there was um, one that was in. Um, I want to say word processor. I, I got to find it for a second, but it's because it wasn't in the section that I just pulled up. But. Um, well, he mentions Thad again on 237 of Pocketbooks. Um, he says, and maybe a man named Thad Beaumont was an unindicted co-conspirator in the deaths of his wife and son, but Alan could not find blame in his heart for Thad either. So it's interesting how it like continues to haunt him in that way. Yeah. I, mean, I still find it very frustrating that he doesn't, he finds it hard to believe that there's anything supernatural happening in the town when he has directly dealt with a case that, if, correct me <laughs> if I'm wrong, like, like he comes to believe that there is a supernatural explanation for Thad Beaumont's doppelganger. It is a little strange. I think that's, I also think, and we kind of talked about this last time, I think that that's why Gaunt is so apt to keep him out of his business for as long as he does, because he knows he'll, he'll be onto him, you know, quicker than everybody else. Um, but uh, this is page 186 in uh, well, my version of the book, the Viking version. Uh, he has a dream about uh, the Black Toronado and the high tone son of a bitch, Stark. And Stark talks to him about how the shop mm-hmm. is at, as he calls it, Innsville, which is a big thing in, in the dark half, and how everything at the shop is like 
you know, it's, it's basically the end. It's, 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 it's everything you want and, and everything you don't want. Um, I like that. Uh, uh, let's see. I, th- I think that's all I have for the dark half stuff. Oh, this oh, is, this is cool. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's on page 204. Um, when he really goes into the whole thing, um, the, of what, what, what happened to Tad and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, is it Thad or Tad? I think it's, I, I said it was Thad. All right. I just watched the movie again recently, but it but, could easily um, be Tad. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's interesting. That it's like, um, Alan had become an unwilling witness to the crash of Thad's marriage and the steady erosion of the man's sanity. And there was the matter of his own sanity as well. Alan had read an article in some doctor's office about black holes, great celestial empty places that seem to be whirling of antimatter, voraciously sucking up everything within their reach. In the late summer and fall of 1989, the Beaumont affair had become Alan's own personal black hole. There were days when he found himself questioning the most elementary concepts of reality and wondering if any of it had actually happened. There were nights when he lay awake until dawn stayed in the east, afraid to go to sleep, afraid the dream would come. A black tornado, uh, tornado yeah, bearing down on him. A black, yeah, you you mentioned the, tor- the, yeah, the tornado. The, the, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So like that, yeah. The, all right, so that was the Stark thing. Okay, yeah, cool. yeah. Um, and then right afterwards is like. There's more about like the sparrows coming up and stuff too, and um, and how that that kind of influenced uh, the stuff that was he kind of almost like wonders if like all the stuff with the Beaumont family influenced his own grief from his own family and stuff, right. too, which is kind of and it's just cool that a lot of the seed the 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 bread comes from that story really do enhance Pangborn in ways mm-hmm. that he just wasn't as nuanced of a character in like the dark half of as he is here, right. um, but. Um, uh, don't don't we think Slopey is related to Frank Dodd, right? His name is Slopey. Yeah, why yeah. Right? give him yeah. the last we didn't, name? Is, yeah, yeah, we didn't really give. They don't really go into that, but you no. just kind of assume. Uh, I've got one, page 260, pocketbooks. His carefully manicured nails cut into the flesh of his palms. He did not notice the blood when it began to flow. Uh, many King characters do this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also, I've literally tried to do it. It's like impossible. <laughs> I have very long nails, but I cannot. Maybe um, I just have a very just, weak grip but <laughs> i think of harold yeah 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 but it, i swear it's in like yeah i, I feel like every I time it. we do this i find one i i, I mentioned I, the christine one already that was um, a really good one mal i did not catch that car wise what kind of car does leland got own yeah, yeah, oh a, a tucker talisman yes oh yeah oh, that's a little what, yeah. that's a little room 237 for you yeah <laughs> but i love that yeah there are a few 237s here that uh, oh i've got a couple in a minute but um but i've got legit king's dominion uh <laughs> page 65 nettie spent some time in juniper hill yep Yep, I thought that that was cool. I, I, on the, you know, we were talking about how they're expanding the stories of, you know, previous stories in this one. I really like how he, we actually are able to catch up with what happened to the Camber family. Um, and on page six eighteen, they say, "What had, you know, what had Mrs. Camber done when she and her boy had returned from their little trip to find that Joe, a world class shit according to everything Ace had heard, was dead and gone, moved out of state, hadn't they? And the property, maybe she'd wanted to turn it over in a hurry." In Castle Rock, one name stood above all the rest when it came to returning things over in a hurry. That name was Reginald Marion Pop Merrill. It's just like in that little digression with Ace, we actually find out what did happen to the family, like the Camber family, because yeah. we never really know. Like yeah. it ends without them even coming home yet. So it's kind of cool to get that that wrap up a little bit. But yeah. um, we mentioned all the body references. Uh, yeah. Oh, but, so many. But Ace Merrill remembering the events of the body. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We touched on that. And we also touched on. M- my uh 
Room 237 a little bit, which is last episode, which is where Myra sees a single crow, perhaps the one which it called before. It flapped down to the top of a telephone pole directly across from the driveway and seemed to watch her. Definitely Randall Flagg. I've got Absolutely. 100%. Just watching his buddies work. I've the got, crow is flagged. The gnome is gone. Yes. I've got three more. Uh, well, one was the, we, I mentioned this last episode, the, the white, the coming of the white that Gaunt screams is a reference to Wastelands. Um, and then uh, page 57, the gag can in Pangborn's car was still there and it had been exactly 19 yep. months. Yeah. Uh, a lot of 19 in this one. Brian wakes up from his dream and it's four past midnight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had that one. And then at the uh, at the very end, page 685, they pick up route 119 to leave the town. Yep. And... Uh, <laughs> Okay. Oh, oh, and then all the men in the car. <laughs> I know. I'm going. I'm going to room, two, uh, room two, three, seven here. Uh, all the men in the car, I and mean, they're singing gospel songs. They're singing, "What a friend we have in Jesus," which is what, what um, <laughs> and, uh, Mother Abigail, Mother Abigail yeah. sings in uh, the stand. Well, hey, uh, when speaking she sees of Sam, they mentioned the, the Lincoln man. Tunnel too. So, oh, yeah, stand is yeah. on the mind. Um, um, are, are we done with official King's Dominion, or do you? Have I, some I, got a, no, I, I got. I got. I got a bunch. Still. Okay. What is it? What do you got? What do you got? I have on 167 when they're talking about Alan's other son, but your idea that he's staying away because he doesn't approve you or us, that's way off the beam. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I have another beam one too, but it's more of a stretch. Well, and I mentioned this last time too, but uh, the epilogue is set in uh, Ames, I think Ames, or Junction City. No. Yeah, Ames, Iowa, which is uh, the setting of the library policeman. Mm-hmm. So they say... That used to be Sam Peebles' office, real estate man, and a damn good one. Then he married Naomi Higgins from down the road in Proverbia, and off they went, just like young folks almost always do these days. So if we get a sad ending for the dark half, we get a happy ending for the library policeman, which is oh, that they cool. got married and they moved away from the town, which means they won't fall under the spell of Leland Gaunt since he's in that town. Oh, that is right. good. That they is got a good away. thing. So, um, yeah. there's, there's some 237 I have here uh, on page 50. Uh, there was a cl- in inside uh, Needful Things. There was a collection of lead soldiers in one of the cases, possibly oh, right. antiques, which is you know battleground. I'm battleground, yeah, the, yeah. The, the figures in there. Is that night shift? Uh, it's night shift. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, which is funny because they adapted it for Nightmares and Dreams, right, right. the TV show. But um, they do mention the gunslinger on uh, 61. Um, there is uh, it says. Um, it's ridiculous, but they're like the eyes of a gunslinger who surveys the interior of a saloon before pushing all the way through the batwing doors and starting to raise hell. I mean, is well, hey also Jude just the idea that yeah. uh, when they mention Leland Gaunt for the first time, they talk about his blazing blue eyes, mm-hmm. which is very much like Roland from yep. that world. The pedophiles um, also face off like gunslingers. Yeah. Later. yeah. <laughs> um, I've got page 167. Polly's talking. Polly is talking Alan through the loss of his son and says, but your idea that he's staying away because he doesn't approve of you or us, that's way off the beam. So that's another little beam. That's what I, that's yeah, what Mel I just, already read that. You <laughs> Wait, no, I thought, I thought you mentioned this is I thought that was a different one. No, I that's exactly what you that exact <laughs> uh, Well, here's, here's another Sorry. one. All right, well, I'm, re- I'm just reiterating that that was a really good beam comment. Believe beam. women. Believe women. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> On page 521, then he saw it was one of the Hanlon twins. Uh, oh, I caught that too. Yeah. Interesting. Mike Hanlon? Yeah, uh, I was thinking about that. Um, uh, I got a room 237 here. <laughs> uh, when Sean, I, yeah, when Sean sees uh, 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 Pangborn in the hospital. Um, oh, he asks him, great. are you the boogeyman? Yeah, Bozeman. <laughs> you know what, though? I actually, love, I actually love that line. He says... Uh, 
uh, it says, are you the boogeyman? And then he says, no, honey. And then he it says, he mm. said and thought, I think maybe the boogeyman is in my hometown tonight. And it's that's very such a movie, Loomis. such a movie line. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, he thinks it. I wish he said it out loud. Yeah. But. I, I hear um, to the child. Yeah, exactly. As he's <laughs> no, as he's walking away to the camera. <laughs> Here's some uh, room two thirty seven on page one eighty two. Uh, uh, Mr. Gaunt had offered to wrap her purchase for her, but Miss Ratcliffe refused, saying she wanted to hold it. Looking at her as she went out the door, you would have been hard to tell if her feet had were on the floor or drifting just above it. Uh, Salem's Lot. Ah, oh, my favorite. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, my favorite uh, room two three seven. And I'm so happy to say that it, is, it has returned once again. Uh oh. The beginning of this chapter says Ace Merrill and Full Dark return to Castle Rock together. <laughs> Full Dark. <laughs> Full Dark. Full Dark. No stars, y'all. Oh, Full I've, dark got, has returned. I've got one I can't believe we mentioned yet. This takes place in Castle Rock, which is the name of a Hulu show that is also Stephen King adjacent. <laughs> oh, well, you know, also, I think Ace of Merrill is reference to a character on that show, Castle Rock. Yeah, who, they shared literally no qualities, that but it's, uh, the character's name is Ace Merrill. Yeah. <laughs> we talked about Aunt Evie, too. Like, she's in. Yep. Yeah. She's we, in some stuff. Yeah, that's, yeah, that was a good one. She's too. in Cujo, right? Yeah. Like, she yes. dies at the beginning yeah, of She sits Cujo? on the porch. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought the whole sequence, this is just 237, but like the whole sequence of like Clutterbuck and John and everyone running around um, in the office with like the papers going over. I thought that was very Twin Peaks, like something that would be happening. In sure. Like the, the, yeah. You know, and the fact that they claim that, you know, Norris. Well, would, Norris like is kind of a deputy Andy, Andy kind thing. of character. Yeah. yeah. Um, did you all notice that the uh, the child welfare office is at six 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 Erie Street? I uh, think that's a mark of the beast. <laughs> I, I think is. that's um, the mark of the beast. <laughs> or this 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 is also King's Dominion of a of a different nature, but um, they're big Young Guns fans. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> and they want to see two. They can't go and see they two. They want to see Young Guns too. Well, if it makes them feel better, two sucks. It does kind of suck. Yeah. I kind Isn't of feel Christian like Slater in the second one though. I, I kind so. of feel like there's a lobstrosities out there with Young Guns on it. With, <laughs> out there <laughs> we can do young guns for lobster love lo- love young guns <laughs> we um, still need to do a casper van dean movie we do for lobster people were demanding it in the, yeah. in the survey well we'll get to it we'll get well, to we'll it we'll get that uh i think that's my i think we've exhausted King's yeah <laughs> I, there's so much in this book it's i thought this is king's dominion the book like yeah Did, isn't it kind of weird and maybe it's just because it's such a personalized story but like no real mention of Johnny Smith, and and granted, it's not really Castle Rock based because it's based off on the town surrounding Castle Rock. Well, and like, I mean, yeah, I guess that's true because they they do they, they mention Frank Dodd, but yeah, Dodd's I guess the real I, Castle I think Rock. It is. If you yeah. think about it, oh no, Johnny Smith. A lot of that stuff was he out there, solved yeah. it. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, they, they it was very well known know. that he was that you know like that. Um, Maybe the truth of Johnny Smith died with Bannerman. Because Bannerman does talk about Johnny Smith in Cujo in his thoughts. Right. Yeah. So. Pangborn don't know no Johnny Smith. And he don't give a shit. He's <laughs> got magic to do. Well, you know. <laughs> uh, I think uh, speaking of magic, it's time to, for us to share our final thoughts. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. <laughs> okay, I'll be right there. He said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. Our final magical thoughts. <laughs> They're always magical. I think they are. Uh, so this is the part of the podcast where we share our final thoughts. Oh, Lord. Oh, come on. <laughs> uh, this is a big one. So Welcome to final thoughts. Welcome, welcome to, to final, final thoughts. Uh, does anybody want to start? 
I'll go. Okay. Mine's uh, pretty short and sweet. Uh, as we've seen with so many of King's novels that uh, span almost a thousand pages, he's really good at building out a town, building out great characters, and just making you feel like you're a part of that world. Um, hashtag the Little Mermaid. Um, <laughs> I I definitely feel that with this book. Um, in the end, though, as I mentioned in the misery section, with this being a disappointing ending. It's not disappointing to the sense that, like, it ruins the book, like I said before. Um, and it's more like going on a great long trip. And you've been able to have some uh, great memories with people that uh, you've enjoyed and experienced and you haven't seen in a while. Um, and then when you come home, the landing is a little rocky. And you stay on the tarmac a little too long. Um, and and it, it, this is a, a slight blemish on what was an otherwise fun uh and enjoyable and balmy journey so for me i gotta go with uh i'm gonna go with four uh bright red pennywise clown noses nice for me. mac so. uh yeah you know i really thoroughly enjoyed the book all the way through i mean we laugh and we joke about a lot of the pound cake and stuff like that but i felt like it was it was such an easy read for me and and sometimes that's not the case with with King and I, I was just like raring to find out where this was going. I was invested in all the characters. He does such a great job of building out the town. Um, yeah, I just, I, I, I was really entertained and I, and of course as a King fan, especially at this point and the idea that this is technically not, but was the last Castle Rock novel. I didn't mind that it went to the links that it did at the end. It didn't land for me as well as I wanted it to, but mm-hmm. I didn't mind it. I was like, okay, this this being the last of the Castle Rock books merits an an over the top like a larger than life ending. I did I just didn't think that it was executed quite correctly. But Correct. I but I did really enjoy the book uh for the most part. So I'm going to have to give it as well for Bright Red Pennywise Clown noises noises mel um i feel like i'm gonna be received as a bit of a killjoy here i just didn't have a great time with it i also think the ending didn't particularly bother me because it felt in keeping quality wise with like the rest of the book um (laughs) i thought that like there was just not enough decisiveness with its themes like i think we had a great discussion about the themes on the last episode that was probably super charitable and like us pulling things from this book that weren't necessarily connected in ways that we were making them connected. I think that King was really indecisive about what he wanted Gaunt's power range to be, what he wanted the townspeople to really represent with their weaknesses and how much of person, how much of their personal agencies are actually involved with their downfalls. I think the book became really repetitive like you just know everyone's going to keep going in and buying items and to me like learning what everyone bought wasn't enough differentiation to keep me super interested I I was very interested in Alan and Polly I think they were the best part of the book for me and I really liked their relationship and I liked Alan as a character but even he was as I've said like very perfect in a way that that took me out of his characterization I think Polly was probably the best part of the book for me Um, and I think Gaunt never really progressed into unique non-cliche villainhood in the way that other King villains have. Certainly we are seeing King's masterful handle on how to display a a small town here and how to handle a a really large cast of characters. Um, But that inconsistency that we've been talking about of wavering between trashy satire and Brian, like 
killing himself in a way that is supposed to be incredibly dark and serious. Um, I think that inconsistency is woven through the entire novel. And I think it's really long. <laughs> like I definitely did flag in the middle of it. Um, Randall flag. I Randall flagged <laughs> in the middle of it. Um, so I'm going to, you know, it's a big downgrade. I'm going to give it two bright red. Whoa. Whoa. Hey, we got hey, Gerber on really Tommy knockers over here. You know what? Again, I like Tommy Knockers more. I enjoy Tommy Knockers more than reading this novel. Holy shit! We oh, that's that's a hot take. You know, I, I'm a little, I'm a bit of a Tommy head, but I, I did, I, I, I. Where were I don't you know. on that's the episode? Hot, on Tommy I don't, Knockers. I'm not saying Tommy Knockers is a better book, but I'm saying I enjoyed it way more. No, I'm just kidding. I don't. I'm not. <laughs> no, I can't. Even, I don't even remember. I don't think I was on some of the Tommy stuff. I think it was only on the miniseries. When you say you're a Tommy head, would you say would that would that label apply to the Who's Tommy? Um, it would, and I'm also a Tommy boy. Oh, uh, he's finally come around. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think to balance out Mel, I actually agree with a lot, if not most of what Mel is saying about this mm-hmm. book. Uh, I think for me, Needful Things marks, I don't know, it's not like a clear transition, but there is a transition here where King's work began to, I I, I feel like it's hard to like paint a, a wide brush, but there are certain King books that feel like, B movies, right? Yeah. Like they feel like his schlockier movies. And I feel like this book is one of them. But, and I feel like in terms of writing quality, in terms of character depth, in terms of, uh, you know, the depth and, and the breadth of the villain, this book doesn't stack up against something like uh, Salem's Lot, you know, but, or Pet Cemetery. But for me, this book satisfies me in every conceivable way that I would want. It's, it represents, in so much of what I love about King, which is uh, a love story I can get behind, which is, you know, sometimes rare for King, but when he does them good, he does them good. Uh, A a great ensemble, which is huge for me, and great villains. Like, yeah, Gaunt might not be the most fleshed out of King's, like, uh, big bads, but I like him enough, and I think that Buster and Ace are really fun chewy like nasty villains and i love them and i love the history that comes baked in with ace i love the history that comes baked in with the whole town i love the way that it references the breath of king's work there's a lot of fan service in this book but in ways that i really love but i also love how pulpy it is i love the violence i love the seedy nature of it all Mm -hmm. and i also um find it very surprising like i personally i remember being shocked when i read this book when i was young and i'm sure maybe some of uh nostalgia is kind of covering my my love for this book but for me um i find this to be one of the most fun most satisfying most uh guilty like it's not a guilty pleasure but it sometimes feels like one uh there's a trashiness to this book that i find very appealing and but also at the same time like i find myself so deeply invested in the characters and in the nastiness of it all. So I don't know. This is, uh, I'm going to go bold and this is a 4.5. Uh, nice. Red Pennywise wow. note. Holy moly. Bright, bright red Pennywise clown noses. 4.5. I think I've only given that elsewhere to Pet Cemetery. 
Uh, not the stand. Maybe, maybe Salem's Lot. No stand. I think I gave like three point five. Wow. Yeah, because uh, oh. I, I I found myself less enthused about the stand on yeah, this most was. recent reread. This book though still holds up for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a riot. But the thing is, like, I really don't disagree with anything Mel said. But um, <laughs> but oh, no, I cannot true. believe you are putting this book on par with Pet Cemetery. I guess for me, it's like it it satisfies in different ways. Well, well it's yeah. a quintessential Stephen King book. Like, yeah. If you really are thinking of like, okay, what is Stephen King like? If you read this, like, this is literally every it ca- encapsulates all his qualities. It's true. Like, like all of our categories were really full. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like there was a lot yeah, of pound cake. There's full, a lot of when you another word for quintessential is archetypal. Like, I don't think like he's doing. I I can above his. You know, I'd say that like he's recycling <laughs> a few tricks here, but there's like but maybe that's the point and maybe too, that's though. the thing is like there's a comfort to this book for me. Like, I love the journey that I'm on here, and I love the familiarity of the world, and maybe even some of the you know the archetypal king things. Um, I think it's a it's a balance to me of high king and low king. You know, mm-hmm. it's there's like I said, there's a trashiness here, and there's a sloppiness here that I think is in some ways, at least for me, forgiven by sort of the manic energy. And the uh, brazenness of this whole thing, yeah. like I kind of love that it can it can have those broad, weird, satirical elements, but then it can also like really shatter me with the whole Brian storyline. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like I said, it's sloppy, but I love the journey of it. Yeah, it's like uh, it's a book that checks a lot of boxes for me in terms of King. It's it's enjoyable. But it also does resonate for me on many different levels. And I don't love the ending, but I also find it like it's it's imaginative and it's uh, well, you it's were, vividly written. And, you know, Leland Gaunt turns into a little dwarf. I was going to say, you end. were really confused by the ending because you thought that Gaunt was a dwarf. <laughs> Wait, say that again? I said, He's you, confused. you were really confused by the ending because you thought that Gaunt was a dwarf. Well, I'm, I'm not confused because that's what happens. <laughs> so... He is he is a little dwarf but no, who but rides a carriage. To Randall's point, he fills the carriage with all of his, his <laughs> items. To Randall's point, I also I do agree with you a lot, Mel. But I think the thing is, for me, it's an I, I'm I'm my noses come from an, an enjoyment factor more so than like is this eloquently written? You know what I mean? Like, there's some books, there's some King books that I don't think are like the best written books, but like. I just have a blast reading it and I really personally enjoyed it because there are a lot of things that Mel was pointing out that we definitely talked about last episode, just the inconsistencies of the, of the theme and stuff um, that I do agree with. But, um, uh, you know, I I, I had to, I had to, I mean, I give my personally on enjoyment too. I just also, I don't respond well to fan service. Sure. (laughs) I will say that I think the fan service in this is, is done in a way that's far more elegant than what most fan service today is. Right. And that's why I appreciate it. Like fan service can be a, it's in service to the story. I genuinely feel like it's in service to the story and it also draws upon his work to, uh, you know, spin, I don't know, a larger quilt of the entire Castle Rock. Like, it's a playground and yeah. he's having fun on the playground. Like yeah. that's, that's how I always saw it. And like, I do, do there's definitely elements where you're just like, okay, that's kind of fun to just revisit, but not really. Like, I don't really think it's too gluttonous. Like I, I, I think I usually am so like averse to that type of shit and I can't stand it. And especially nowadays, and especially if you know, you've heard us talk about this on the Castle Rock episodes, like that is so insane. Like that type of fan service drives me nuts. But yeah. like, 
you know, like when you're like going to the Camber Ranch and there's like a point to it and like there's a real inventive. And you get a cooch cam. You get some cooch cam. Um, <laughs> you get Ace Merrill like back. Cooch cam. Yeah. Cooch cam is great. But... I guess for me, I'd best describe this as like a popcorn book. Yeah. Whereas oh, I totally. wouldn't, I wouldn't say that about Salem's Lot or um, or Pet Cemetery, which are probably my two other favorite yeah. kings. This to me, it's it's a popcorn book. I love the cinematic nature of it, and I think it just kind of it it satisfies maybe the 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 blood bloodthirsty little teenager I was when I first read it. And I really wanted um, less philosophy and more guts, yeah. you know? And yeah. I think this book uh, sat- still satisfies that urge in me um, in a weird way. And yeah, I think it's like, I think that, I don't know. I find this, it's, I just, I don't know. It's like, I have such a fondness for this book. And a lot of that probably has to do with nostalgia, but I stand by my rating, 4.5 noses. I think that and, brings it to like a 3.7 or something like that for a while. Yeah, else. probably around there. Mm. Uh, and so, and so the thing is like, obviously when, when we're weighing grades, it, it's like, but it's like, I guess for me, it's like saying, giving um, a movie like, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of like a highfalutin film that came out recently. Uh, Moonlight. Moonlight, like giving Moonlight, uh, like say, three and a half stars but then giving uh spider-man homecoming three and a half stars like like two different movies yeah they're two different movies and in terms of what they're trying to do i think it's like you know it satisfies on that sense so i think i think that's like where i'm looking at it but i don't know it's it's hard for me to give it anything lower considering my affection for it so makes sense yeah so uh any other final thoughts on on needful things this has been a fun fun ride Uh, really i'm really really looking forward to watching the movie yeah, it's we're fun. going to be back next time. I kind time. of want to watch the movie now. Do if it. You to, yeah, Mel. You are welcome to be on the episode, Let's bring Mel. the Needful crew back. Yeah, the Needful crew. That's who we are from now on. Yeah. I've, watched the, I've watched the theatrical cut, and now I'm going to watch the TV three-hour cut, that uh, three or four-hour cut that uh, Constant Listener oh, gave us. So, oh, my God. Yeah, you keep reminding me. It's so long. I just Ed Harris sounds great. He's great I feel now. like in the extended cut, the Beetlejuice uh, yeah, demon I, shows up playing Gaunt. <laughs> Uh, but that's yeah. cut from the theatrical version. Yeah. If you yeah. ever end up interviewing King, you're going to be like, what's in the carriage? Because we know Leo Gaunt is outside. I so literally what's... would ask him that. And he would just be like, interview's over. <laughs> so, Wow, that's not a question I want to answer. <laughs> I'm going to take this off now and uh, I'm just going to walk out the door. Well, uh, we'll be back next week with our review of the movie, the theatrical and the extended cut. So it's going to be a lot. Uh, we got a lot of needful things. We're going to so. quote a lot of Ed Harris. And this has been fun, guys. Um, follow us on our socials, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Fresh content. We love the fresh content. We love the fresh content. And we're always mm-hmm. posting. So please visit us there. And uh, I think it's time to say long, long days, days and, and pleasant, pleasant nights. Bye, y'all. Consequence Podcast Network.